Are you comfortable, Reagan? Yes. How old are you? Twelve. Is there someone inside you? Sometimes. Who is it? I don't know. Is it Captain Howdy? I don't know. If I ask him to tell me, will you let him answer? No. Why not? I'm afraid. If he talks to me, I think he'll leave you. Do you want him to leave you? Yes. I'm speaking to the person inside of Reagan now. If you are there, you two are hypnotized. Welcome to this percolated media Halloween special. As the three men in a retrospective podcast review all of the movies in the Exorcist saga. What an excellent day for an exorcism. Join Garrett. I haven't had a bath for three days. And Matt. Why me? As they bring back horror film scholar Mick Duffy. I wouldn't be concerned about reason, Major. He's a scholar. And they review each film, one exorcism at a time, all leading up to a review of the brand new David Gordon Green directed entry to be released this Halloween season. Does the original Exorcist deserve its title of being the scariest movie of all time? I cannot tell you it's forbidden. How will Matt and Mick react to their first time viewings of The Exorcist 2? And I hate it. I can't stand the sight of it. And why are there two versions of the fourth sequel? He will seek to poison your mind. The answer to all these questions and more... Nothing you can do could make it any worse. Coming up, courtesy of Percolated Media. Pazuzu, prince of the evil spirits of the air, take me to Kokumo. Exorcist 2, The Heretic, released June 17, 1977. Budget on this was $14 million. Box office, $30.7 million. And this was directed by John Borman. All right, boys, before we get going on this movie, I feel like I need to make a public service announcement. I know there are people out there who, every Friday when our podcast gets released, they download it and they go run or they go driving or they do their normal thing. And sometimes they won't even bother watching the movie. And I think with certain movies that we do, Matt, you know, we talk about Superman or even Pirates of the Caribbean. You can kind of do that because as three people who have college degrees, I think we do a pretty good job of explaining the situations going on. I implore people, if you have not watched this movie, hit stop right now. Go. It's on HBO Max as we speak. Watch it and then come back because I think you guys will agree with me. No matter what we have to say, there is no way we can do justice with what's on the screen. No, no. it's a. Um, this film is like The Matrix. <laughs> I mean, I can tell you about it, but really, you have to experience it for yourself. There is no amount of exposition or explanatory dialogue that I can give to adequately describe the experience of watching this movie for the very first time. So I don't think this is a review that you can really appreciate unless you have seen this movie. 
And this is a movie, we've covered a lot of notoriously bad movies. We've done Batman and Robin, we've done Catwoman. Maximum Overdrive. We've done Maximum Overdrive, we've done basically everything Shyamalan has done for the last 20 years. You know, we'll be doing Phantom Menace very soon. This is not a movie that has a whole lot of defenders. I think if you look at a list of, if you Google top 20 worst movie sequels of all time, I'm pretty sure this will make an appearance on every single one. Not only top movie sequels top bad movies i mean this is the top of a lot of people's worst movie of all time list and you know i i look at who directed this and, I, and it's john borman and when the exorcist came out it was obvious with the fact that that movie created such a fandom such a such a phenomenon i guess you could say of horror you knew the sequel was coming out but matt you know what i thought of when i saw that john borman was doing this i thought of when we covered the ewok movies and we had the wheat brothers come in and they came in and they flat out said before they started that second movie we hated that first ewok movie so we're going to start off by killing all the ewoks in the first five minutes of the new one john borman came out and said he was asked to do the first one and he had no interest in doing it so why would he come back to this i'll go to mick second matt you go first why would he do this the money i think that's first and foremost and also he was a director and he, he he's made a lot of bad movies He's made some good ones, though. But he's one of those directors where he always took big swings. And you know what? In this day and age where everything feels very sanitized and very studio-driven, I always appreciate when I'm watching an artist either do something really revolutionary or fall flat on their face. He's done both extremes. Where where does this movie fall in? Well, I think you know the answer already, quite frankly. But I think he did this for the money, and he did this for another reason that I, I think is overlooked, is that his movie before this, Zardos, is really abstract. It's fantasy, but it also tries to incorporate science fiction, which this movie does as well. So I, th I think he did this because he wanted the notoriety. And in, in a certain way, I think he, he wanted to show that I can do this because... I I don't a lot of my questions about this movie are just I don't know what the thought process was. Um, you need to strap me to one of those EKG machines with John Borman's tombstone and allow me to ask him the questions myself. Believe it or not, John Borman's still alive. He's ninety years old. Yeah, yeah he's still. Yeah, he's ninety. Although I don't think he's. I think the last movie he did was. It's been a while. Like a, yeah, yeah. It's I, well, his last like big movie too was like Taylor of Panama. That was twenty mm -hmm. years ago. Now, Mick, I want to turn to you a lot, sir, because I I normally do a lot of back behind the scenes, and I said and I have some behind the scenes things to talk about in the course of this review. But you, sir, read a book on the behind the scenes of this. Maybe you could answer better than the two of us. Why did John Borman take this film? Because he genuinely thought that he could make a film that would be a corrective to The Exorcist. He had been offered The Exorcist, told Warner Brothers not to make it, because he thought this would be a film that's entirely about the torturing of a child, and he didn't like the subject matter. And then the film was a huge hit. So when Warner Brothers were pushing ahead with their plans to make a sequel, and John Kelly, who was the executive in charge of production at that time, had approached Berman and... Yes, Berman kind of thought, well, if the first film's about despair, I can make a film that's about healing. So he thought he could use this film and these pre-existing characters and concepts as an on-ramp for a film he'd like to make about a deep, spiritual, new-age woo. Oh, boy. I don't know. Like, I, I watched this movie, 
And I think, again, what the hell the thought process could be with this? And it's just one of those things where you have the most successful horror film of all time. This movie defied all logic and became a massive hit. And Friedkin and Blatty flat out said, we're not going to do a sequel because we have nothing else to really say about it. Mick, how much did they pursue those two? Did they really ask and then they turned them down and they didn't try anything else? Or did Blatty have a script? Or how exactly did this get into production? Well, I think both both Blatty and Friedkin were just, nope, we're done. There's nothing else to be said here. And I think if you look at how this came to be, I think, again, you need to sort of look at Warner Brothers, where they were uh, in the 70s, because they were having a good decade, and they had managed to sort of generate sequels to Dirty Harry. And, you know, you have at this point the beginning of the notion that, well, we could still be a respectable studio, and we could still generate sequels to something that's a hit film. Anyway, historically, before this point, sequels are lower budgeted than the original and have less prestige. Even, even just a few years earlier, if you look at the uh, Planet of the Apes sequels, which are you know, shorter mm-hmm. and less expensive than the 1968 film, which is very much an A picture. And this isn't a diss against the quality of those films. There's some great filmmaking on most of the Planet of the Apes sequels, but that's the idea. You would spend less on the sequel. It would be a lesser product. But after this, by the time 1976 rolls around and this production is gearing up, We've already had The Godfather Part 2, which is legitimizing the idea of a sequel mm-hmm. as being a, a continuation and it's no less prestigious. We also have, not quite as prestigious, but we have The French Connection 2, oh, yeah. where, you know, they've, um, well, John Frankenheimer is doing it. So it's a, um, there had been, I think, before this, I've mentioned Dirty Harry sequels and Planet of the Apes, and the connecting figure there is Ted Post, who directed the first Planet oh, of the yeah. Apes sequel. Uh-huh. And the first Dirty Harry yeah, sequel, Dirty. which no uh, less a person than Alex Cox has publicly stated, uh, well, he's argued that he thinks it's a better and more interesting film than Dirty Harry, and that's the thing. The idea would be that, well, you know, you spend less money and you don't get a visionary director in you. You get your Ted Post in. You get your journeyman director who's maybe come from TV who will bring it in on schedule and under budget and, and won't bring any kind of personal vision to this. But that was shifting, so they were... I think they were keen to not just make a sequel to The Exorcist, but have one that would also kind of have a name director attached and some prestige, because prior to this evolving into a John Berman film, they'd toyed with the idea of doing an inexpensive, cheaper Exorcist sequel that was sort of going to be a similar plot about the investigation into what happened, and it was going to have flashbacks, and they were going to use some unused footage, and they were going to do it for $3 million, so it was going to be a cheaper film. And, you know, the shift in the culture, and I think really we're looking at Godfather Part 2 here a lot, Mm -hmm. uh, because not only is it a prestige sequel, it also functions as a prequel, and Exorcist 2 tries that as well. It tries to sort of also prequelize the first film. That's a very good point. And also, let's not forget, too, Matt, we covered another movie from 1977 earlier this year. This came out a month after Star Wars. Oh, true. It just blows my mind that before Exorcist 2, we didn't have Star Wars. Now, the month la- month later, we have The Exorcist 2. It's just, oh, man, before and after Star Which, Wars. And Exorcist 2 cost $3 million more than Star Wars. Oh, God. Now, this screenwriter is not really a screenwriter. In fact, I don't even think he has another film to his credit. He's a playwright. Why would they bring this this William Goodhart in to do the screenplay to this? Did they think that to have another prestigious writer do it, or did they think a playwright would bring something different? Well, I think, again, if you consider what Blatty's reputation was before he wrote the novel The Exorcist, mm-hmm. 
he was a uh, he was a humorist. He wrote comedy. Yeah. He's not the person you would immediately think of if you wanted a, a something written in that genre. You know, he's not a Richard Matheson or somebody whose whole career is in that particular genre. I mean, certainly after The Exorcist, but his career as a writer of comedy is dead. Nobody's hiring him to write Pink Panther films after The Exorcist. But before that, he's come from a different place. And Goodhart was a well-regarded playwright. And again, the prestige. Yeah. Well, like I said, he didn't really do any other screenwriting after this, and he died in 1999. It's just weird. Like, this is your first and only credit. <laughs> There's an adaptation of one of his plays. There's a previous film, I've, the name now escaped me. Is it The Candidates? But it, it's adapted from one of his plays. Uh-huh. So technically he has one screenplay, but it's a... Um, I couldn't find the film anywhere to watch. But y- yeah, uh, technically he has one script, feature script for this. And also technically... This was heavily rewritten. Yeah, yeah. They did a lot of rewriting on the set. And the final screenplay, I don't think anyone knows what exactly was in the original because you're right. They did a lot of rewriting in the course of this. Yeah, so it's a little unfair to blame him for this, Matt. Yeah, that's a good point. Now, Matt, you had heard, and we kind of touched on this last week, but I want to get your thoughts here. I covered a lot of bad movies, obviously. This is notoriously bad. What were you thinking when you sat down to watch The Exorcist 2? I had no idea what to expect. Whenever I hear a movie's bad, that can mean a multitude of things. But when I sat down to watch it, I will say something happened to me in the first five minutes that I I could count on one hand the amount of movie experiences that an opening has instilled in me, which we'll talk about momentarily. But I had no idea. I didn't know what this movie was about. I also didn't know who was in it outside of James Earl Jones because I had seen that infamous clip. Mm -hmm. But I I didn't know what to expect outside of more likelihood than not, I wasn't going to have a good time. Now, Mick, you also were coming into this for the very first time. And I I don't know what your affinity is with bad movies, but what were you expecting when you sat down to finally watch The Exorcist 2? Well, um, when I I was a kid, there weren't a lot of movie books in my local library. Mm -hmm. But one of the books I did have was uh, the Medved Brothers book, Son of Golden Turkey. So I knew from that that this film had a horrible reputation. Uh, I, I don't like the Medved Brothers' writings. I think they're uh, I think they're mean spirited, and I'm not terribly surprised that Michael Medved went on to become kind of a sort of Fox News commentator complaining about woke things. But I had read about Exorcist too, and it is in their poll that they did for I think their first book when they asked people to write in and vote for worst film ever. Exorcist two nearly won. Plan 9 from Outer Space topped the pool, but Exorcist 2 was apparently a very close second. Yeah, so I had read about this film, and had heard it was awful, and I think I'd mentioned last time that Exorcist wasn't legally available on video when I was a kid, but Exorcist 2 was. <laughs> and Exorcist 2, the heretic, was the loneliest-looking tape on the shelf <laughs> on the video library nearest to my house. Just never rented. I remember looking up at it and thinking, yes, yes, that film's supposed to be garbage. I'm, I'm just not going to waste my money. So um, I, I was aware that this film was bad, and I just stayed away from it. Yeah, this is one I think I touched on this last week. I have tried watching this movie uh, one other time. I sat down to watch it. I believe it was right after the first one. And I had somebody who would come and watch us while my parents were going on trips and whatnot. And I think we turned this movie off halfway through. So I had never seen it all the way through until this viewing. Boys, we have done a lot of build-up. What do you guys say we dive into 
<laughs> and I'm already laughing. We dive into the plot. I, I, I'm already without words, and we haven't even started talking about the movie yet. You know, I think you, even trying to describe the plot of this, I mean, this, it's like a Zen cone, you know, um, what is the sound of, you know, one hand clapping? It's that. It's a, uh, I could tell you the sequence of events, of events that we see in this film, and some of the things that happen in scenes, but the actual plot is so hard to follow. Yeah, it, trust me, this is way more complicated than it has any right to be. And my notes are, <laughs> I had to pause it a couple of times. I'm like, I cannot believe how intricate this plot is. And that's why I told everybody before we started this, you got to see this movie to fucking believe it. Matt, I think we said this a couple of times during the M. Night Shyamalan retrospective. I get the sense that John Borman had just seen Eraserhead. Interesting. Also was in a car accident, much like the characters in this movie, was in a coma, woke up, forgot how to direct, and just said, fuck it. This is the equivalent of fuck it, we'll do it live. All right, so we're starting off. We get some opening credits that look very tacky, by the way. And we have some witch cackling and some campy sounding music right away boys this doesn't feel like what we just saw last week does it no and the tribal yelling that they incessantly use throughout this movie is nauseating to listen to and at times its placement borders on outright camp especially when it's combined with some of the imagery we see later on yeah i mean it's a uh I should add, one of the uh, big gets for this film is it has a score by ennio morricone yeah, that was my next note yep which a uh normally improves any film. This is not his best work. It's not his best work, and burning mind, the same year Morricone also scores a um, Work a Killer Whale, which is not a good film. Mm. But his score for that one is sublime uh, and beautiful. And I know his work here has defenders, and people love it for you know, full-on craziness, but um, for me, it's, I think, maybe the worst Morricone score I've ever encountered. You know, I uh, was lucky enough to see him uh, conduct live. Oh, have you uh, really? Once. Yes, yes, and it was amazing. Um, big, big Morricone fan, and uh, I think his work here is uh, is misplaced. And I don't even think it's a genre thing either, because he scored horror films. I mean, he did those first couple of Dario Argento movies, uh-huh. and those have incredible scores. But I think the problem is, this is a film that's so berserk, that A, how do you score it? And B, there's so little oversight on this movie that... They did just let Morricone do what he felt like? It's really out of place, and I, and I feel like the abstractness that so much of this movie tries to write upon clashes with his music that sounds very contemplative when you, when you listen to it. Yeah, it's... D- distracting, I think, is the, the appropriate word. So, after the credits, we look at what I'm assuming is the casino i work at because that's what it looks like <laughs> this looks like a fucking casino that richard burton's wandering around and matt you mentioned in a joking way that you were making a drink a lot like richard burton i feel like the guy is not past his alcoholism at this point i think he's drunk half this movie there's another cast member that i think was also going through dependency issues and burton does not look well here no he does not and you can tell because a lot of his scenes he's just staring dead face into the camera and I think that's because he was reading off cue cards for certain scenes. He doesn't emote, and I think his character is the heart of what's wrong with this movie on principle. Because they want him to be the contrast to Father Karras from the first one. 
But Karis in the, the original Exorcist was a character who was also experiencing a crisis of faith, but he was very expressive, and you, you got to know him, and you got to see that struggle. Here, you see it with one scene in this opening, which this is one of the movies I can kind of one hand where I watch the opening scene, and I'm like, this movie's going to be fucking terrible. <laughs> Plays its hand almost immediately as we, as we get into it. But this character, uh, Lamont, he's just a placeholder for the more interesting stuff. And unfortunately, he's not very energetic. His, his character arc is borderline non-existent, and it doesn't help that the actor is not... He's not adding anything to this role. He's, he's very flat. He's very flat in this, and some of his line readings later on are unintentionally hilarious. Wasn't he nominated for an Oscar or something before this? He is one of the great. He's one of the great actors okay. of his yeah. of his period. He was generational with with Shakespeare in particular. You know, a lot of people said he was the follower to Olivier. He had seven Oscar nominations throughout his career, so he he's a great actor. But yeah, he had a well documented history of substance abuse, and this is kind of the I don't know. I, I would equate this to something like those last couple Brando movies where he was really out of it, it's that level. Um, but yeah, he, he's awful in this, and, and the character sucks. Yeah, it's a, uh, it, it's funny because in the original script, the character Father Lamont was originally conceptualized as being a younger priest, you know, a younger priest who had been mentored by Merrin from the first mm-hmm. film, and it makes less sense when you've got a 50-year-old Richard Burton, but they had tested some younger actors for this, and... They had tested Christopher Walken. No shit. And the studio didn't think Walken quite had what it took. And if you can imagine a better version of this movie with Christopher Walken in it, this whole conversation, you know, uh, I think this film might have more defenders if instead of a completely disengaged and visibly unwell Richard Burton, we've had Christopher Walken and, you know, a youthful and energetic Christopher Walken doing his thing. I I think that might actually have worked. I don't know, Matt. You're you the big walking guy. Do you, do you think that would have worked? I don't know because I think everyone is horrible in this movie. Yeah. This is one of those things where it's like it, it takes a really special movie for you to have this level of talent. I mean, look, Richard Burton, Louise Fletcher, Max von Sydow, James Earl Jones, and for everyone to be just very out of sync. John Borman was incapable of getting everyone on the same on the same page so we're seeing this witch who doesn't want to be exercised she says i heal the sick she decides to burn the place down by scattering a bunch of lit candles and she goes up in flames and matt you and i reviewed raiders of the lost ark earlier this year this looks like a really bad version of that scene oh god this is first of all this is a village where everyone else is speaking spanish but somehow she can speak yeah she goes back and forth between spanish and english i guess the devil had uh, Rosetta Stone downloaded into her brain before she set herself on fire, which apparently there are no after effects on this production because the, the compositing is so bad, and she has the same expression from the moment she knocks over the candles to the moment that it cuts to the next scene. This is right away telling you that nobody cared on this production, and it's setting you up for the movie that you're about to watch. It's amazing that this movie is both obscenely creative but also redundant and dull at the same time. Like, that's a special kind of bad to achieve. Yeah, no, that's it. That's the weird paradox of this movie. I mean, I guess 1977 is the golden age of prog rock. 
just before punk came along, and it's like that. You know, if you've ever been uh, forced to listen to a prog rock album by maybe one of the lesser prog rock bands, and someone's telling you it's great, and you, you can hear their terrific playing, and you can tell that the musicianship is strong, but the whole thing's too long and boring, and you wish it was over, and that all the people who made it were dead. It's like that. I can tell that effort's gone into this, and that people, talented people, it's awful and not for me, please stop. Guys, it's the opening scene. <laughs> we're already wanting it to end. Yeah, but it's, it's yeah. so for the movie that you're about to experience. Right. It's not one of those things where, like, because you can have a lot of movies that have bad openings, but find their footing. All the problems with this movie are on full display in the opening few minutes. Mm-hmm. Disinterested lead, inconsistent acting, bad visuals, logic issues, slash, fail. like, the fact that this movie is set in Africa for so much of it, a lot of the decisions in this movie feel like, well, it's only here because we established it in the first movie. All right, I- I'm going to spill these beans right now. Was Max von Sydow ever on set? Supposedly. Yeah. yeah. Okay, because I had questions about that later on. Yeah, what's weird about this opening scene, oh, so many things, but there's no reason. Like, why is she killing herself? Lamont isn't here to kill her, and we don't know who she is or really who Lamont is other than a priest who once knew Father Marin. So right away, this movie is not doing a good job of telling us who or what is the protagonist who by the way is not even trying to put her out he's just looking at her as she's going up in flames what is happening in this opening scene to be fair later on we'll discover that uh, lamont doesn't really know how to put out it's a recurring motif in this movie uh lamont not understanding everyday things um so he wouldn't know how to put her out you know um, that's a good point he also starts the exorcism, and then he's like, well, this ain't working. Fuck it. I'm going to let her burn. I also love how nobody leaves the room. All just watching yes. this happen. We then cut to a high school band room, and we see our protagonist, I guess, from the first film. We have Reagan, played by Linda Blair. She's really not, though. You say she's the protagonist. No. She's really not. It's like, this movie fails at expanding her character. Well, let's talk about that. See, here's Linda yeah. Blair, who we all said that Richard Burton was fighting alcoholism. Linda Blair has been outspoken and out in the public since this movie has come out and has said she had some major drug abuse problems around this time. And it shows. I think she's disinterested. She turned down this script a number of times before she finally accepted it and she thought there was a role that she could maybe go sink her teeth into i think that's bullshit i think this is somebody taking a paycheck this is not the same character we saw in that first film she has that sweet innocence that we saw in the beginning stages but mick this is not a character who is living with a burden of having this thing inside her she looks like the same exact character we saw in the beginning stages and that is just not good well here's where we get to the film's complete betrayal of the sort of themes of the original movie and its conclusion because the conclusion of the first film tells us that Reagan's cured, Demon's gone, and she doesn't remember anything. Mm-hmm. So if, as this film tells us, that, oh, nope, there's still something there, that means two priests died for nothing. That tells me that Marin and Karis were just useless. And I wasted my time watching the original film. It's a complete betrayal uh, of the original film's ending. 
It really is. And, you know, apparently this was the part where this film notoriously laughed at at premieres. And this is the part where William Friedkin and William Peter Blatty both laughed. And I don't think they ever finished watching the film. Friedkin, until the day he died, talked about what a piece of shit this movie was. And I think it has a lot to do with the fact that, Matt, this character, Reagan, is not the same. No, the problem is she's both exactly the same. But for a character who went through so much trauma, she really doesn't express it. And that contradicts the whole thing of suppression. So basically, this movie tells us that Pazuzu has been living inside her and done nothing. It's only because she goes to see a therapist that shit starts to potentially go bad again. This is also one of the... the, You talk about betrayal. Not only does it pimp-slap the ending of the first movie, the big reveal about this this plot also eliminates the outright horror of the first movie that it can happen to anybody. Yeah. That that the devil or whatever evil was in the first movie chose someone at random because they wanted to show that corruption can happen to pure innocence. That's not what we get in this movie. And it's one of the things that I think infuriated me the most. Linda Blair, I don't blame her. They paid her seven hundred and fifty thousand US dollars. Mm-hmm. And if this film had performed as well as the original, she'd have gotten two million. This is nineteen seventy seven. Yeah, I was gonna say that's nineteen seventy seven. We're talking about ten million dollars of modern money. Yeah. And that's um also she wasn't fully committed, you can tell, because she openly said, I'm not gonna do any of the makeup of yep. aesthetic. Yeah, we have that, a we have but, a Jennifer Lawrence situation going on here where she's like, Yeah, I did it before, but I'm not gonna do it again. So yeah, like and I, I don't like sequels when they go back and don't show the fact that People, because the whole thing about trauma and PTSD, that's certainly more prevalent now in modern society. But you you leave me to believe that all that stuff happened and she's totally okay 100%. That's one of the most unrealistic things in this movie. <laughs> Next to a lot. Oh, there's a laundry Oh, list. yeah. So Reagan's tap dancing and we see a boy flirting with her. He's playing Lullaby of Broadway on a saxophone while she dances. Yeah. <laughs> It's the most horrific part of the film. (laughs) (laughs) And then we meet Louise Fletcher. She's in her office trying to communicate with Debbie, who is apparently hearing impaired. Debbie looks like she'd rather be anywhere else. And I think we just kind of described the three of us while watching this film. And Reagan shows up at the office and we got this 70s set. We got hexagon ceiling panels, glass walled rooms. Everything's just so reddish brown. Yeah, it's like you typed 1977 science fiction film into, you know, uh, um, mid-journey, and this is the image it would generate. It's, you know, there's that joke about all 70s science fiction movies have movies having hexagons in them, which isn't true, but it's so true of this film. And it's it's such an obvious set, and you know, so many aspects of this film created production problems. Mm-hmm. And I just can't help but thinking that set must have been murder to light and record sound in. You've got all of that glass, you've got all these glass partitions that, you know, ignoring the reality of what it's meant to be. I don't know how you're supposed to provide, you know, psychiatric or psychological counseling to children in an environment where no one has privacy and everything is, you know, partitioned off and weird, you know, um, I know it's supposed to look like a hive, but everything's partitioned off in weird glass cells and it, it's, it, it's painful to look at. So it's funny, Mick, you mentioned hexagons, considering there's a scene later on where you literally see two people rolling a hexagon in the background. Um, yeah, I, I don't know how familiar you are with, in the earlier days of the internet, 
there is a website called Djibouti's Bad Movie Reviews, and they had an observation about that giant hexagon that's being played with in the background, and they coined a term, and I noticed I Googled it recently, and it's still up on the TV tropes as a term for distracting plot, uh, distracting prop in a scene, but they call that hexagon the nut of fun. <laughs> You know, and that's kind of a term for any object in a scene that's just distracting, that's distracting you from the main action. So we're seeing Louise Fletcher. She's brought in as Reagan's therapist. Now, again, we have another actor, Ellen Burstyn, refused to come back. I don't blame her after the way Freakin treated her in the last film. But we have this replacement, Louise Fletcher, this therapist. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, and if you go back to... A lot of our podcasts, Matt always corrects me when I say someone won an Oscar when they didn't. Louise Fletcher won the Oscar for Nurse Ratchet, correct? Yes, she did. And yeah. that was two years before two the years. came out. And I, it's, that is the only reason they cast her. Because you would think that, because the first movie set up the whole thing of putting your faith in science versus religion. This movie is continuing that, but not doing it effectively. Instinctively, you would think they would make her like the, if not evil than ignorant to what's happening, like completely ignoring the religion. But when the priest shows up, she's totally on board with it for the most part. And it's more of the fact that he's so like dour and borderline stupid versus just outright rejecting Catholicism. If you're right about the sets, this is just an ugly movie to look at. Yeah. Everything from the, the color correcting to the, the incessant grays that are all throughout that facility. It looks futuristic, but not in a way that reflects the contemporary period that the movie's supposed to be set in. And the technology, I hate this in movies, where they have technology that is so far advanced beyond the period that the movie is actually set in to where it breaks the reality. There, there's so much of this movie that I just... I strongly, like, I, I was throwing up pea soup myself. <laughs> at, at, I was so repulsed at how this movie is put together. Now, Fletcher's asking Reagan if she's been having any dreams of note. Reagan says she hasn't, and that she feels like she's wasting her time. That's a great awesome for the entire... <laughs> I, I, fuck, yeah, I fucking knew you were going to say that. <laughs> but also, this is the problem where you have, by not having the mom, because in the first one, Regan's not really a fully fleshed out character either. All the emotion and work and development is really through the mom. So you'd think not having her here, this would be the perfect justification to actually make Regan the focal point. But again, it, it's not done, and that's the most obvious thing you could have done. And they come up with a decent reason of her not being here, where it looks like she's she's acting and she's not around. But the person that's they brought fun. back is another portrayal that we'll get to. Uh, yes. That's true, too, so... So, Tuscan asks about, quote-unquote, that time in Washington. And Reagan says she just remembers being sick and having bad dreams. And Tuscan goes, those bad dreams are still inside you. Are we not forgetting about the two people who died <laughs> in connection with that <laughs> incident? Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, also, is this sound sort of psychiatric counseling? Reagan, do you remember the terrible trauma you had that you don't remember? <laughs> I want you to remember all of it. <laughs> Is that ethical? <laughs> and is there no medical record of her doing all those tests in the hospital? I know. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say a word that's very politically incorrect in this day and age, but I think it's a great way to s summarize my thoughts on the movie. The movie's retarded. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's pretty bad. Now, this is when we're introduced to this, I'm guessing is the preload to Pacific Rim, where Titoro had them drifting 
<laughs> no, I thought of, you know what I thought of? This is what Christopher Nolan watched before Inception. Oh, yeah. Where it's like, you know, you have to go into the different levels and mm. you can yeah. cross-connect and date each other's spaces. But at the end of the day, it's just, it, it's a flashing strobe light. But it's a flashing strobe light that lets you see into another person's mind. Yes. Here's the thing. The synchronizer, uh, Dr. Tuscan's synchronizer, apart from being a piece of technology that can't exist, if she hadn't, she wouldn't be treating Reagan. She'd be accepting her prize from the Nobel Committee. Correct. Or she'd be spending the many billions of dollars she now has from having, you know, solved the problem of consciousness and created the most important invention in human history. Mm-hmm. You know, and everyone treats it like it's, oh, you know, it's a thing. <laughs> it's, it, it, it's maddening. It's, this is the thing that would change all human life. Just put it back in the desk drawer. <laughs> you don't need it for the scene. Yeah, there's, no, there's no locks on. There's no lock on the cabinet. Yep. It's just kept. Yeah, and it looks so chintzy. It as does. Well. Yeah, with, like, it's got like three lights on it. As Matt said, it's pretty much just a flashing strobe light. <laughs> this looks like something you would buy at Spencer's Gifts that would have a more, uh, let's say, descriptive purpose. So we go to what I'm guessing is the Vatican. I don't know. Um, yeah, but but it's the Vatican in the way that like Dan Brown thinks about it, where it's like this cryptic, yes. secretive organization where they meet in back yes. rooms and well, the, the, the cardinal talks like Emperor Palpatine. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like well, this is so I'm laughing my ass off at this because clearly this is made by somebody who doesn't understand the roots of Catholicism. Okay, here's the thing that's mad. Okay, John Berman. Okay, he's not Catholic. He wasn't raised Catholic. Uh, you know, he's a uh, his family's originally Dutch. I don't know if it was his father or his grandfather, but uh, he grew up in England, where he went to a Catholic school. What the fuck? He was taught by priests. He'd have had to go to church services. It's not like he's had no exposure to Catholicism. It's baffling. It, it, this is a theme that recurs throughout this production. They went to Rome to see if they could get permission to film in any Vatican locations, and they didn't get it. Mm-hmm. So this is a set, and it's supposed to be somewhere in the Vatican, but it, the vibe I'm getting is Vegas Casino. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah, it, it feels like that. And, and Paul Heinrich is so checked out. He is, as is everybody in this movie. And, and it, it's weird, because thinking about this, well, this is Paul Heinrich, and, you know, he's Victor Laszlo in Casablanca, mm-hmm. right? So I think between this and Casablanca... He's in the worst and the best film that Warner Brothers released in the 20th century. It's <laughs> quite a resume. You know. Yeah, that's, a, that's the full gamut. Yeah. You know, the, the worst thing the studio ever puts out. And the, the best, best thing. thing the studio ever put yeah. out. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that this came out right before Star Wars. Did right you after. I think they made this when they did. Right after. Or right after, because I guarantee you if they waited, they would not have been able to get James Earl Jones. No. So we're seeing the Cardinal ask Lamont to investigate Marin's death, but we're also learning that Marin is viewed as an extremist for his views regarding the devil. Which is there's no evidence for this at all in the first film. <laughs> and that goes to Matt's point where they are completely betraying what happened in that first film. I wasn't referring specifically to that, but it's, it's a valid point because it seems like when Marin gets involved, he does so on his own fruition but because of how the process is to get permission to do an exorcism, which is established in the first movie to a considerable degree, this feels like a huge retcon 
But, you know, hypocrisy is embedded in Catholicism, so it wouldn't surprise me if they turned on him. But also, this movie, again, I talk about this a lot. This is one of the worst examples of the why now problem. It's been four years. You're sending someone to investigate now, and you have witnesses. Yeah. The mom was there. Mm-hmm. You could ask Regan. You had Kitty, who was mm-hmm. there, or, or Sharon, Sharon, whatever her name is. Yeah. Kitty's the actress. Uh-huh. But yeah, it's just the, the very foundation that this movie is set, is built upon, is made out of toothpicks. And it's so dumb. And Lamont carries around Marin's picture like he's an ex-lover. Yeah. Also, why is Karis not even mentioned? Why are we just concentrating on Marin here? Yeah, it's it's weird. I mean, it's a uh, it's also weird as well because I, um, I always assumed it's a deliberate that Lamont is a surname beginning with an L. Mm-hmm. So alphabetically, it comes after K for Karis. That's a good point. But before M for Marin, right? Oh, yeah. It's like... As if, as if they're trying to position this character as being, well, he's a priest with dogs, <laughs> like Karis. But also, he's an older and learned and experienced priest, like Marin. You know, that like they're trying to position him in the middle. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, so what you're saying is that it operates like the Men in Black, where everyone has... The, the first letter of their name is their code name, and that's the order they go in. I was, I was thinking more like the naming convention for androids in the Alien films. <laughs> where they do up yeah, a letter Ash, for each Ash, Bishop. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, Callie. Good yeah. point. David, yes. Uh. So, Lamont is having a crisis of faith, but the Cardinal doesn't give a shit. He just says, you're investigating Father Marin's death because we actually think he was a Satanist. Okay. No, it's just like, really? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm screaming at my television at this point. I'm like, really? Is that what you think? I mean, I, I don't understand this. Yes, we knew he was a Satanist because he died performing an exorcism. So we then cut to Lamont being at Tuscan's office, and we have a little trick that Borman does where we have Reagan walking in and Burton's face is reflected on the glass door behind her and when it opens his reflection is replaced by Tuscan's face you know there is some decent direction going on here we've done a lot of ripping of this movie I want to give slight compliment I think Borman did a few nice directing tricks here Mick would you agree that the directing is at least competent well there's some visual experimentation having read accounts of the making of this apparently Borman's tack was that, well, the actors have been cast, I'll let them do their thing. That he was so focused on the technical problems that he wasn't really directing the cast at all. And this is a script where every single line of dialogue is the exact polar opposite of naturalistic. One of the things that really sells the first film is how naturalistic and authentic all the conversations seem. And no one here speaks like a human being, and I don't think there's any way to get actors to convey that dialogue without it sounding camp or unconvincing, and, and Berman's too busy doing things with mirrors and lights to actually talk the cast through this and come up with, you know, workable ways of delivering those lines. These line deliveries, and these are three professional actors. We mentioned they've all been recognized for their work, and we're seeing the line deliveries they're giving here. Matt, doesn't it feel like we're going to be covering the prequels? Doesn't this seem like Lucas directed this and not Borman? It does, because also it speaks to how bad the direction is, because these are people who have... In a lot of cases, Jones, Burton, they have extensive theater background. And because this movie is shot kind of like the first one, where where there's a decent amount of two shots, and it does feel really stagey in these hospital scenes, or, or the psych ward, it makes it even worse that no one is convincing. 
I think that that's a key word. It feels like I'm watching a movie. Whereas the first one, there is a lot of documentarian style filmmaking while still making it feel grandiose when appropriate. So I, I can't be with you. I think the direction in this movie is abysmal. I do think there's some interesting shots, but I think those are things that, you know, you work with your DP on. It takes a team to do that. And it's clear that's where his focus was because this script has more holes in it than Swiss cheese. Yes, you know, this is abysmal. I think we're only five minutes into the movie. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, we uh, just, we're, there's so much more to go. Yeah. It's feeling like a death march. <laughs> this this movie is two hours long, but it's one of the longest two hours I have ever felt watching. It is a chore to get through this movie. I will completely agree with you on that. For an Exorcist movie, there is not a single scare in this entire film. <laughs> no. Tuscan asked Lamont if he's seen the coroner's report or the quote-unquote testimony, and Lamont asks if he can talk to Reagan. But Tuscan thinks that Reagan feels great guilt over... We're finally recognizing it, the three deaths, and that she repressed what happened. But questioning her about it might reopen some old wounds. Lamont tells Tuscan that she's up against evil and starts monologuing about it. And yeah, this guy's guy's fucking mermaid man where he's talking about evil throughout so much of the movie. And it's these are the scenes where it's the most blatant that he was drinking before this production. Because as I said, his eyes are all bloodshot. A lot of the color has been drained out of his face, and he's just staring dead face into the camera because he I don't think he knows where he is. And they do so many close-ups because in all likelihood he was leaning on shit because he could barely stand up. Reagan walks in and says she wants to use a hypnosis machine. Where the hell is Reagan living? Um, I can tell you where they shot it. Where they shoot it? They shot it at a um, 666 Fifth Avenue. In New York. Of course they were the 666. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because that's, that's where Warner Brothers had their um, New York headquarters at that time. Interesting. <laughs> the exteriors are a different building, but the shots of her up on the roof, that was the building Warner Brothers were in, and also the building that the original film was edited in. Yeah, remember the words original building, because there's something we see later on that is definitely not the original building we've seen previously. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So we we go to where she's living, and this is where we're reintroduced to Sharon, who, Mick, you mentioned, was in the first film. And here's where one of the biggest character portrayals happens. This was a character who I think was really important to the last film because she proved that Reagan and or her mom were not crazy. She was the bystander who saw these things and related to the audience how the audience was feeling. She is so fucking misused in this movie i cannot begin to fathom why you bring this character back besides the fact that we don't have ellen burston so we're just going to bring another familiar face yeah i mean there's two things a yes bringing back someone from the first one because they don't have first one anymore and apparently berman had doubts about including her in this film and then he kind of thought that apparently she could do some of the heavy Acting lifting that maybe Linda Blair couldn't do by herself. And also, and it's never phrased this way directly in any of his quotes, but I I get the distinct impression that Berman thought, ah, yes, pretty young woman I can point camera at. I think there's a lot of male gazy stuff going on in this movie. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, we're going to get some really creepy stuff later. Oh, There's there's definitely a certain amount of gross male wish fulfillment Mm -hmm. in some of the imagery we get later on, so you're, you're absolutely right on that. Her inclusion feels like a a narrative cheat because she doesn't feel like the same character. 
you might as well have said she was living with one of her mom's agents or something. Because yeah. this does not feel like the same character whatsoever. Which is also how I feel about Regan for the entirety of this movie. So Regan's it's- watching some show about ESP and spoon bending, and she then fools Sharon with a real basic weird sleight of hand. Yeah. Sharon's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> this is the thing that establishes it's the 1970s people believe in stupid woo and no one's thought that yeah Yuri Geller's just bending those spoons and saying he used psychic powers oh, and she'd, I, call, she'd call an exorcism on David Copperfield yeah yeah, yeah you know just a um, uh, honestly at this point both Sharon and um, Reagan looked like they'd be I could I could fool them into thinking I'd stolen their noses by doing that thing you do to toddlers <laughs> You know? Yeah, I think John Borman did that before they started shooting because no one could smell the bullshit they were walking into. So they're hooking Reagan up to the synchronizer, and she starts flashing this strobe in Reagan's face, and this annoying electric sound starts happening, and Reagan becomes hypnotized. This is... I was laughing watching this. This is when Tuscan tells Reagan to listen to your tone and make it go deeper while having herself hooked up to the machine. (sighs) God. They flashed to Richard Burton, who could not look less enthused. Yeah. Um, can, can we talk a little bit about the Kuleshov effect here? Go for it. Do you guys know about the Kuleshov effect? I'm aware of it, but go ahead. Right. So it's a thing they teach. If you study film, uh, first semester, they'll teach you about the Kuleshov effect. Uh, Kuleshov was this Russian film theorist who showed that if you cut film footage together in a certain way, you can elicit an emotional response. And his sort of experiments were he had these shots of an old man's face with no real expression on it. But if he cut from the old man's face to say like a bowl of soup, people watching that film would go, oh, the old man must be hungry and is thinking about the soup. Or if he cut from the old man's face to like a coffin, people would think the old man is mourning. And normally the Kuleshov effect works with anyone, no matter their acting ability. You can Kuleshov your way out of anything. Mm-hmm. But not Richard Burton in this film. No. This, this, this is a film where the Kuleshov effect actually just doesn't work. And it's, it's insane. It's a, um, you know, one of the fundamental laws of cinema stops working. We're not even 15 minutes into the film. <laughs> yeah, like, and this is a, I can't give them a pass because this is from a director who actually knows what he's doing. And this is also a movie, this is another film school thing I noticed. This movie breaks the 180 line a lot. Yep. It does, yeah. yes. It's not even breaking it deliberately to nervous like in the shining you know where where you know if, it, if you look at the scene in the shining where um jack is talking to grady in the bathroom yep yeah and there's a big crossing of the line yep. and it's it's so unnerving but here no it's just nobody knew what they were doing yep tuscan starts asking reagan about her memories of washington reagan doesn't remember much so she has to make her tone go deeper tuscan then s- switches on her light and asks reagan to deepen her tone and now Louise Fletcher is looking just as disinterested as Richard Burton as Reagan oh, talks God. her into synchronization or whatever the fuck is going on here. Yeah, it's literally freaking. So I'm going to make a very obscure reference that I think only people my age and younger will will know. You've never seen the TV show SpongeBob SquarePants. There is an episode where they use this device called the Orb of Confusion, mm-hmm. and it gives it results in them getting this like basically comatose look where they're drooling and are probably can't comprehend basic function. That's this expression when people use this device. And you know what's sad when freaking Batman Forever has a better usage <laughs> of like brain manipulation <laughs> than a movie that's trying to sell you on innovation of science <laughs> combating theological evil. 
Well, here's the thing. Do you remember the medical test sequences in the first film? Yeah. And how real all that technology uh-huh. is, and how real those locations are, and, and how distressingly authentic it all seems? And this throws it all out the window. All of it. You know. Yeah, it, it, Matt's yeah. point is right on, where they're just pissing on everything that happened in that last film. It's also they're going too far into pseudoscience, mm-hmm. to where it just doesn't feel consistent with the original movie. Which was, those tests they were doing were, nowadays they're pretty outdated and borderline inhumane, but they were appropriate for what would have been done at that time. You know, that was pretty innovative stuff. Here, it's almost like futuristic. Like, this movie goes really hard into borderline science fiction to the point where it doesn't make any sense. So Lamont starts asking Reagan about Marin exorcising her. Marin, not Karis, just Marin. Yeah, yeah, fuck Karis. That's what this this movie should have been called, Exorcist 2, fuck Karis. Reagan can see Marin praying, and Lamont asks if he's casting out the unclean spirit. And then Tuscan's aide switches the machine off so that Reagan can wake up, but Tuscan is still under some kind of weird trance. We learn that her heart is fibrillating, and the aide tells Reagan to go back under. But Lamont says, I know where she is, even though, as far as we know, he's never seen so much as these machines before. Oh, boy. But Lamont straps himself in, and he sinks up while Reagan goes over and tries to... What's she doing to Tuscan's heart here? I don't know. Lamont starts to have a vision of possessed Reagan from the first film on the right side of the screen while present day Reagan is on the left. Right. Which looks like an optical effect, but it's not. They did that all on camera. Yeah. There's a, uh, there's a big, there's a thing called ghost glass, which is a sort of type of glass that's half mirror. And if you increase the lighting behind the ghost glass, things that are behind it will suddenly become visible. It all sounds really complicated, but it's precisely kind of sort of a expensive, fiddly, indulgent uh, playing with toys that Berman does in this movie mm-hmm. to the detriment of the storytelling. And this is where I really figure out, and I'm not like I didn't know last week. I praised Blair's performance last week. I'm looking at this, and I'm like, this is why her performance combined with those sound effects that Freakin added were so important to that movie. That movie, when you see that girl just sitting there completely taken over by this demon, you really feel for her and you're scared of her. I'm not scared of this thing that is trying to be Reagan, but as Matt mentioned, Linda Blair refused to wear makeup for this. This is somebody completely different and boy does it show. Oh boy, this is really cringy. And again, One of the problems with this movie, and look, there's been a lot of them, in case you haven't figured this out already, it removes the mystique of walking in on his dead body in the first movie. So, like, this movie is one of the worst sequels ever made because it retroactively weakens the first movie in hindsight when you go back and watch it because you know what happened as a result. I think those are the worst kind of sequels. Yeah, and... You know, in the original, us not seeing how Marin died is great. It's one of cinema's most effective ellipses. You know, if you think about this, sometimes, you know, film can sh- can skip showing us a detail and it's stronger for it. And I always thought Marin's death in the first film was up there with them. Do you know Seven Samurai? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know the bit where there's the, 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 the absolute master swordsman who's amongst them? Mm-hmm. And he wanders off screen to deal with the two guys who've got guns. And we don't see the fight. We see people watching him and then he walks back in a minute later. Yeah. And we can only imagine the badassery that happened off camera. And it's amazing. You know, it's, it's like that. It's we don't need to see how Marin died. Mm-hmm. We just need to know that it happened. And it's powerful because we're in, we're in Karis' shoes. And we see that he's dead. And, you know, 
and and this junks all of this and also it doesn't look like the original film it looks like dinner theater yeah they're reenacting that first film yeah this feels like a stage production yes. of the original movie that they shot and filmed it's also not not even the same architecture in the room. The color grading is off, yep. and the dissolves they're using to juxtapose the hands touching the heart. It oh no, no, that's that's all that's all in camera. This this is why this film costs so much. That's in camera. That's oh. an in camera effect. It looks hokey and cheap, and yeah, it looks it, like a cheap dissolve. But it's in camera and must have cost a fortune. It's still uh, the same purpose though of making this scene hilarious. Yes. See, that's just it. This is a great idea on paper. I think this would be a good scene if this movie was good. I, I think there's an idea that Borman's trying to play here, but it's not coming off well at all. It just comes off as stupid. And Von Cito's acting is also not consistent no. with the cut because they keep using like a bunch of different expressions yeah. as falling to the ground. Oh, boy. So we've got Marin shouting, Get the hence! And the possessed Reagan grinning and saying, She's mine, always! And this isn't that devil from that first movie. This is the Wicked Witch from the fucking Wizard of Oz. Yeah, because they couldn't get... They didn't get Mercedes the Cambridge to come yeah. back. And it's... Again, you know, by this stage, the first film has been parody. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good you point. Know, things like Saturday Night Live. Yeah. And by not having the original voice... And by having a Reagan double who doesn't look anything like Linda Blair, get some with dimples. They've got somebody who's gaunt, right? Mm -hmm. This makes it all feel like it's a bad parody. It's bizarre. And my very next note is about Max Van Cito. And Matt, you mentioned if he was actually on set for this. He was on set for this. But he's another one. Is it just me, or is this like the worst performance of Van Cito's career? Uh, well, depends how you feel about Flash Gordon. Oh, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> Flash Gordon is maybe his best work outside of his stuff with Bergman. Mm. So while all this is going on, Marin's face is overlaying Tuscan's, and Possessed Reagan's face is overlaying present-day Reagan, and the two Reagan's hands are intertwining and fighting over Tuscan's heart. Yes, that is what Borman's trying to show here. And yes, you see them messing with the heart, and this fucking fake heart looks abysmal. <laughs> So Reagan goes off to draw something, and Lamont and Tuscan, they start talking. Lamont tells Tuscan that evil is gaining and that the possessed Reagan killed Marin, but Tuscan says that it might have been a dream or a hallucination instead of a memory, because that didn't happen. Yeah, and really? Has she figured out the moral implications of using this technology? Mm -hmm. At all. Yeah. If, where's the part where Jonathan Frakes comes out and says it never happened? <laughs> Because <laughs> uh, that's basically the bullshit they're trying to uh -huh. sell you on. Tuscan leaves, and Liz comes in to give Lamont a portrait that Reagan did of him. This looks like something, I guess, Matt, that one of your children might have drawn of you or your husband, right? Uh, well, I think my kids, even at this stage, have better uh, penmanship. Have better artistic, <laughs> have better penmanship than this. But I love how he's like, oh, there's fire. That that means the fire is actually going to happen. Yes, and the movie. The movie doesn't realize that the fact that they're going to literalize that is funny. <laughs> no, it's, you know, it's it's whenever my child draws a dinosaur, I know that means there's a dinosaur outside. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't understand how they get that. They get that meaning from that. It, it's so baffling. <laughs> Tuscan says that she doesn't think any of this imagery means anything, but Lamont's convinced that there's a fire somewhere. So he runs down to the basement, followed by Tuscan, and they find a burning box of something in one of the storage cages. Tuscan goes to get oh help, while Lamont beats at the fire with a wooden crutch. 
Because that's how you put fires out. <laughs> it's it's why the girl died at the start. Yeah. Even if he had it, yeah. <laughs> he knows he would have injured her, hitting her with it to put out the flames. The only way this would have been funnier is if he went up to a fire hydrant and blessed it with holy water. <laughs> And then put it out, because this is so dumb, and it looks like freaking Freddy Krueger's boiler room down there. Oh, book Freddy Krueger's boiler room on Freddy's Nightmares, not on Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, it looks like the one, looks like Yeah. <laughs> this makes the fire get worse, and we see a doll burning up in the middle of it. Tuscan gets a fire extinguisher, but she sees the picture of Lamont and spends a good few seconds just looking at it. This look in between the picture and Lamont surrounded by the flames. So outside the hospital, the fire department's getting everything squared away. Lamont tells Tuscan that Reagan was warning them about the fire and that her research is revealing miraculous things. And then we get this line. Your machine has proved scientifically that there's an ancient demon locked within her. again one of those movies where people's lines don't match their performances absolutely not and let's get through the logic of this boys so reagan (sighs) told lamont and tuscan about a fire that looks like it wouldn't have done much more damage if it had just burned until it set off the fire alarm and this is what proves to lamont that she has some kind of second sight not the whole good versus evil heart fight that we saw synced up with tuscan is that what i'm getting here yeah and what we're also getting some weird uh rear screen projection yeah yeah i was gonna mention that like it's again you know the original film is so dependent upon using practical locations and that makes it feel gritty and realistic and we talk about freaking the background of the documentary and feeding into it and making us believe the implausible things in it because it seems so grounded in reality but no here we have richard burton uh and it's a rear screen projected New York behind them, and it's just so distracting, and, and you can't believe any of this. So that night, Reagan has a nightmare. An evil voice starts to tell her that we're going flying far away, and she starts dreaming of what appears to be a post-apocalyptic village in Africa. And locusts, guys. Villagers are fighting locusts. She's sleepwalking in slow motion out on the balcony of her apartment, which, by the way, has all mirrored surfaces. We're past a bunch of doves that John Woo would be weary of. And then she goes nearly off the edge, almost falling to her death. How is Linda Blair playing this without laughing hysterically? She's not playing it, period. She's like a zombie. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. They they built a platform on top of that building on Fifth Avenue. Mm -hmm. So she was actually only a foot from the edge of the real building. So it's still... Yeah, and uh, you know, there's no harness on her. Uh, I mean, she's earning her $750,000 for that scene. Um, Yes, so... Uh, the camera operator and Berman were harnessed, but she wasn't. And she's going to the edge of that platform that's very close to the actual edge of the building. And when they'd finished that day's shooting, Berman discovered that his end of the harness actually hadn't been hooked in. Again, I think this scene could be okay, but it's just the way it's played, the way it's executed. I like the imagery that Borman's doing here, showing here with all these mirrored surfaces and things. I think this is a real, real good way of showing that evil is within us. It's reflected upon us, right? So I think he's doing good things, but none of it is executed well at all. And also, again, just uh, this movie writes Reagan like she's a very small child, but shoots her like it's Cinemax. Oh, that's so gross. Yeah, he's wearing like a borderline, like, sepia-toned nightgown. (sighs) Yeah, it's it's really uncomfortable sexualization of a minor. Oh, that's so disgusting. Yeah. Sharon wakes up and finds Reagan messing with some doves, and she says that she's going to Washington for some stuff that her mother left behind. Four years ago. Four years ago. (laughs) 
in a house that we're told is a rental in the first film. <laughs> What's still in Washington? <laughs> we see Sharon meeting Lamont at the top of these steps. You know, these steps that me and Matt and Mick, we all talked really highly of last week. So now we're going to those. But they're not the steps. They're different. Because the production couldn't get permission from the no city of Washington, D.C. They game. can't even do that so, right. <laughs> yeah. So, it's, so the steps are built. Wow. So that's a set? Those are built on the back. That's on the back lot. Yeah. The steps are okay. But once you get up them to the house, the house is very obviously a back lot recreation. The house just looks wrong. Mm-hmm. And the whole street, yeah, they, uh, that, that chunk of Prospect Street that they use, they built that all on the back lot and... It shows. Yeah. It, it doesn't seem real at all. It, it, it feels a bit Mary Poppins. <laughs> it's the equivalent of saying we're going to film a mummy movie, and instead of going to Egypt and the Sphinx in the background, you have the Eiffel Tower. Mm. So they go into the house, which, as Mick brilliantly pointed out, is actually a set. And you're right. This house does not even look the same. Like, they didn't even do any comparative compositing or anything. Like, th- they just built it, and they said, go in it and pretend it's the house. Lamont's quizzing Sharon about Marin's visit to the house, and we find out that Sharon actually stayed away from the McNeils for two years, but returned after she realized that she was only at peace when she was around Reagan. That's not a qualification. No. (laughs) (laughs) That's really... If somebody said that to me about my child, I would... Yeah. I wouldn't let them mind them. Yeah. Especially because it's not like they spent an exorbitant amount of time with each other in the first one. So that doesn't make any sense. Lamont asks if she's turned to psychiatry or religion, and then Sharon just scoffs at religion, which really... Would you scoff at that, given what happened in the last film? Uh. Lamont takes a look at what used to be Reagan's bedroom, and then he prays for Marin, Sharon, and himself. Lamont goes back to Tuscan's office, and they chat about her own children and her divorce. She asks Lamont if he ever, quote-unquote, needs a woman, and he says yes. And then there's a really awkward pause. And then here comes Reagan, and here we go. It's time to synchronize again, boys. Okay. You know the bit where Tuscan asked that question? Yes. Uh, you know, Tuscan was originally scripted as a male. Was he really? Yeah. And uh, one of the actors they were considering, but didn't get, and again, we're looking at the sort of alt-universe version of this movie where maybe it turned out better, but they were talking to... Um, Chris Sarandon. Chris Sarandon, really? Yeah, which, again, a, 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 you know, at, at the time, a very young but very magnetic and interesting actor who would definitely have done crazy things. Yeah, he was in uh, Dog Day Afternoon at this time, wasn't he? Or was that after this? Yeah. yeah. That was before that. I think I was 75. 75, okay. So, yeah, he would have already been in that movie. So Wow. And even t- Chris Sarandon could smell the shit on this and said, no, thank you. Um, I think they thought he was too young too or something. I have no idea okay. if they... I, 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 don't, I don't think the words too young ever crossed the minds of Catholics, oh, especially, with pre- especially with priests in this yeah, movie. I'm sorry. Yeah. This time it's Lamont and Reagan. They're syncing up, and they're going into Reagan's dream. This time we see Marin in an African village, and this presumably has to do with the exorcism where he and the demon that possessed Reagan first cross paths. We're hearing Marin talk about a young boy, saying that this boy, this young boy, he has very special powers. Oof. Call Charles Xavier then. It's bad enough that we have to make Marin and Pazuzu have like a history, which I'm not crazy about. But then they they say, oh, Pazuzu's been targeting people that are healers. Oh, well, don't get me started on the healing. Here's the thing as well. They keep saying Pazuzu. Yes. And I don't think they mention him by name in the original film. I think they do in the book, but I don't think they. I don't think anyone in the original film says Pazuzu. I- 
because it's a silly name. It's like if they'd made Silence of the Lambs, yes, but Hannibal Lecter was called, I, I, I don't, you know, um, Humbleton's Chuckle Pants or something, <laughs> right? And every time someone said, his, yes, you know, you must never forget what Humbleton's <laughs> Chuckle Pants is. You know, you wouldn't be able to treat him seriously as a threat, and it's the same with Pazuzu. You're right. Because, you know, that yeah, thing. Pazuzu is a very just odd, weird-sounding name for a demon. Tuscan tells Reagan to bring Lamont down to her. And we again see Marin and the villagers. They're fighting locusts. And they have this weird POV shot of one of these locusts that they go to a lot in this movie. Oh, my God. It is so bad. This boy, he's sworn by the locusts. And then here's Marin. He's rushing to help him. The boy looks possessed and says in a demonic tone, I am Pazuzu. Lamont then says Pazuzu, to which Reagan says, call me by my dream name. Oh, my God. (sighs) and Lamont says Pazuzu king of the spirits of the air and then he says it again oh my god this is so bad yeah it's at this point that I I think I'm imagining it's around about this point that most people would have walked oh absolutely look the three of us have watched many 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 films that have come out after this but I gotta say you know going back to 1977 if I were a film goer and I had seen that movie four years ago I would have been stoked that this movie was coming out it'd be a this point or earlier where I would say, you know what? No, thanks. Why would you build it up for four years and come back to this? Yeah. Back in the dream, we see Marin. He's exercising the boy, and they're dangling in a crevice, I guess. <laughs> and again, it's, <laughs> it's the pit from it's, Temple of Doom. And it's another contradiction. What's that? Because in the first film, we're told that Marin had performed an exorcism in Africa 12 years ago. And this is a much younger Marin. This is like Marin in the like 1930s, 1940s, yeah. something like that. Great point. The wind's blowing and the camera's swooping around and Marin's calling on God as people are falling to their deaths in miraculously large heaps. And then, presumably to avoid further losses, we move inside a church where Marin continues the exorcism, driving Pazuzu out of the boy. But Pazuzu, now apparently talking directly to Lamont, says Marin only gained a little time. Pazuzu lets slip that the boy is named Kokomo. <laughs> so this is where the Beach Boys got the name? <laughs> okay, Kokomo is an actual African boy's name, uh-huh. but not from that part of Africa. It's not an Ethiopian name. It's from, I've not forgotten where, but it's it's from further west. So this is like making a movie set in Ireland, calling your child, I don't know, Pedro. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 you know it's, it's that wrong. It's, a, it's, it's a many thousands of miles away from where a child would have that name. But to the film's credit, the Kokomo does sound like a made-up screenwriter's version of an African name, but it, it is actually an African boy's name. And I want to say the language is Aruba, and it means immortal. I mean, this movie is immortal because we're still talking about how bad it is 50 years later. (laughs) Lamont asks to be taken to Kokomo. Pazuzu asks if he's sure, and when Lamont affirms this, we, again, just have this POV shot of this locust flying around various African landscapes. This shit's so comical that Toto might as well be playing in the background. (laughs) Well, here's the thing. We've got the terrible model shot of this sort of um, African village. And we've got the terrible soundstage work. You know, at no point does this look like they're on location because it's a soundstage. It looks so fake. It does. And again, this is one of the things that are insanely expensive. Reading about the making of this, in order to try and simulate desert light, they needed to have 100 arc lights on the roof of the soundstage. And they needed all to be working in sync and pointing in exactly the right way to create just a singular shadow. And apparently this would take 
sometimes most of an entire day just to set up. And so the things where money has been spent, yeah. but it's not improving the movie. Yeah. You know, and it's a, it's a contrast to, you remember the uh, Northern Iraq locations used in the first film and how much value that adds to the movie? And this is the exact opposite. It's, we're in pretend land. That's a great point. And I have been involved, and I'm sure you have too, Mick, in so many productions where money was spent that does not show up on the screen. Yeah, and it's... a. You know, it's it's completely pointless. There's one or two shots later on where they do exterior. They shot some exteriors in the desert in Arizona, and it looks fine. And you know, one wonders, well, if they weren't going to fly to you know Ethiopia, which is where this is supposed to be. And to be fair, it would not have been a safe place to film at that point because there was a war happening. But you know, yeah, you, you have to ask, why didn't they just go out to you know the Mojave yeah. or wherever? So we arrive at the front door of a house, and here's James Earl Jones. And Matt, you know what I thought of when I saw this costume? It looks like Conan the Barbarian. It looks like that. But I also thought of, remember when Vince McMahon dressed up Tony Atlas to look like Sabu Simba (laughs) in the 90s? (laughs) But you're right. He had just done this in Conan, or it was Conan a few years later, actually, wasn't it? It Yeah, Conan was uh, 82 when that came out. And (laughs) in... Probably the most comical of a sequence that in a film that has many comical sequences. James Earl Drones rears back his head and roars like a leopard. And then right after this, we get a split second shot of a real leopard roaring. Yes, that happened. And that's why I tell everybody, you got to see this fucking movie to believe it. You know who must love this movie? Michael Jackson, because he uses that same roar in beat. Does he really? In the music video, yeah. Oh my God. So we cut back to Tuscan's office, and Reagan's had enough. She's yanking off the synchronizer headpiece, and the machine then beeps. Yeah, it beeps like a goddamn microwave. Yeah. <laughs> Reagan is able to remember a few details of this vision, namely that it's set in Africa, and it looks like images of Africa that she saw in a museum. Because that really narrows it down. Tuscan's concerned because Reagan wasn't supposed to remember anything, but Lamont is convinced that she holds the key to finding Kokomo. Reagan is hanging out in the lobby of Tuscan's office. I, I, you know what? Th- this scene feels like it's out of shitty police procedural. Whatever the Vatican equivalent of your gun in your badge is, is what he should have told him to turn in. Because from here on out, he becomes the rebel renegade yes. who's going against authority. It's so freaking bad. Yeah, he should have to have turned in his dog collar. <laughs> and the yeah, holy water. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not the one on his ankle. <laughs> Yeah. Reagan's hanging out in the lobby of Tuscan's office. She's looking very, very good-natured, considering what she's going through. And then, oh boy, she sees a younger girl hanging out and asks her if she's waiting for Dr. Tuscan. The girl nods, but she doesn't say anything. And then Reagan asks her, what's the matter? And the girl is barely able to say, I'm autistic. And then Reagan is just smiling, and she says, what do you mean? And the girl replies that she can't talk. And then Reagan says but you're talking now the girl's awestruck reagan can hear her speak and we're getting this choir on the soundtrack that tells us that we are seeing something supernatural here she asks reagan what her problem is and reagan says i was possessed by a demon the girl is just looking really really concerned and just looks at reagan and reagan replies i swear to christ oh it's okay he's gone now yeah that's a uh... this is so fucking um, offensive well i mean it you know this is a scene i was fighting deeply hilarious until i pressed the x-ray button on amazon prime and it brought up the credits because you know who that other actress is Ooh. dana plato no the yeah, chick from different strokes he, yes oh who, my you know, god um, who didn't win her battle with addiction no. and, you know who was a uh, 
and you know, who the media were very, very culpable in, you know, her decline mm-hmm. and, and her death. Yeah, if I remember this correctly, it's a humiliation with a journalist is the thing that pushed her to go home and take her own life. Yeah, it was actually, she was on the Stern show, and then like three days later, she went, oh, you know, right. she yeah. went home and killed herself. <laughs> yeah, I'd forgotten why I hated him yeah. so much, but yeah, <laughs> it, this would be a hilarious scene if it wasn't carrying that terrible sort of frisson of sort of tragedy to come. She's not credited either. She's not. It's, she's not on the actual credits, mm. no, but I mean, it is her. That character's uncredited. Mm. Yeah. I mean, Matt, you have streamed about the representation of autistic people on screen. This is bad, right? Oh, God, this is like, I guess it's like the equivalent of like someone wearing blackface. Yeah. I think it's almost that level of just borderline ignorance. And I'm glad you referenced Howard Stern, because this movie turned me into Paul Giamatti from Private Parts, <laughs> where I wanted, I wanted to scream at John Borman, you're the motherfucking Antichrist. <laughs> so the girl's mother walks in, and she is so happy when she's hearing her little girl talking and rushes her out of the office so her father can hear her speak. And Tuscan, who comes in to see what all that fuss is about, asks Reagan what she did. Nothing, Reagan says. I was just talking to her. First she was talking inside, and then she started talking outside. And then we're cutting. And then we're cutting to. And then we're cutting to Richard like, Burton once again, just looking about as drunk and out of it as you can look. She should have asked her what her midichlorian count was. <laughs> that's basically how, how this scene plays. It's like she pulls a Jedi mind trick. I cannot believe how bad this movie is at this point. I mean, this is comical. This movie, it just goes to show the the tone from the last film is completely missing at this point. We are in self-parody. We're in camp territory. Mick, you mentioned the Saturday Night Live parody. I feel like this is like a two-hour representation of that. And the tone is what set everything apart. And I, I cannot believe how narratively inept this movie is. Yeah, the storytelling is just so bizarre. I wonder if part of this is... You know, because Berman had made movies before this that are well regarded. He'd made Point Blank and Deliverance. Yeah. And Excalibur, right? He'd already made with, that, right? That's after this. Yeah. But I mean, I guess the thing is with Deliverance and Point Blank, you know, these are both based on novels mm-hmm. and they both have very, very clear narrative structures. So they're shot full of some of the sort of eccentric Berman stuff that's maybe more accentuated in his later films. But those movies have clear narratives. So. It's hard to mess them up too much. But here, because everything's so opaque, based on visions and technology that doesn't exist, and um, pieces of information that are conveyed via artless exposition, because of all of that, it's just... Oh. Yeah. You know, it's a storytelling equivalent of anti-climb paint. Much as I want to climb over that wall, I can't. <laughs> you know, it just slides off. No, none of the information sinks in. Lamont's convinced that Reagan is a healer, and Tuscan just yells, Let's stick to science! And Lamont's like, Don't hide behind science, you're better than that! Oh my god. Especially <laughs> because she, she did not show any resistance to letting the priest yeah. in on the, the first use of that device. Yeah. Yeah. Tuscan tells Lamont to keep away from Reagan, but he's convinced that she's in danger. You've got to fight that demon that's inside her, he says. It's preventing her from reaching full spiritual power. So, so what is she, the fucking phoenix? Like, <laughs> Tuscan then says that we make our own demons, and rather than having him thrown out, she just walks away in a huff, and then we just get more just bad music cues by Maricone here. So now we're at the Natural History Museum, and Lamont and Reagan, this is where they meet up. Only they hadn't arranged to. Like, somehow Reagan knew that he'd be here. So now Reagan is, like, supernatural. Now she's, like, this healer. She's got, like you said, Matt, Jedi powers, right? Yeah, the, the movie operates, like, with with the... It reminds me of... You ever see Dario Argento's movie Phenomenon? Oh, yeah. With, uh, yes. 
Jennifer mm-hmm. Connelly. It kind of reminds me of that, and he's like her Donald Pleasance, where she it operates on just, oh, it, it's fantasy, so just go with it. When, me personally, I need a lot more than that. And, and this movie's too fantastical, given the context of the original. Reagan asks Lamont if priests believe in ESP, and Lamont talks about one priest's idea of humanity being united in a world mind. Right. <laughs> yeah. They, they did. Okay. This, this this is a real figure they're referencing here. Is it? And okay, yeah, it's a it's a uh, French Jesuit. It's called Philip Tempe Le Chardin, and weirdly, he'd been a partial inspiration for Merrin in Blatty's original novel, and. He had this pseudo-scientific paper that was published after his death where he thought that evolution would eventually become aware of itself as a process and that we would all be able to form together a sort of hive mind Mm -hmm. and, you know, achieve oneness with God. So um, pretty crazy sort of woo, but uh, Berman was very into this. And uh, it's one of those only in the 70s yeah, things. Yeah, I was going to say that. They see an exhibit on the Rockian churches of Ethiopia, and Reagan recognizes it as the location where Marin exercised Kokomo. Lamont goes to the cardinal and asks to go to Ethiopia to find Kokomo, hoping that his testimony will validate Marin's work. Cardinal, though, isn't having any of it and orders Lamont to go into spiritual retreat. And I'm sure that Lamont talking about seeing this thing in a vision didn't really help his cause. Um, there's a line here, isn't there? Doesn't he say, why retreat? Why not advance? There's something like that. <laughs> yeah. Some term. Yeah. It's, just, it's, it's, uh, yeah. He's also doing the thing he was assigned to do. How yeah. Has he committed, yeah. How has he committed heresy? Yeah, that was my, that was my next point. Yeah. But Lamont does head to Ethiopia and climbs the gorge to the church where the exorcism happened. He witnesses what appears to be an Ethiopian Orthodox service. Lamont confesses his disobedience and takes communion, taking an especially long drink of sacramental wine, which... Yeah, nobody yelled. Yeah, exactly. He probably kept on drinking this. We go back to New York. Tuscan visits Reagan out on her balcony, and Reagan chides her for not helping Lamont or letting her go into sync, even though Tuscan claims that she can't do either. How bad are the deliveries of lines in this scene? Yeah. Oh, this stuff, part of this is on, is on par with Ed Wood production. Yeah, I was, yeah, I was just thinking that, yeah. Well, no, it, it's worse, because, you know, the thing with Ed Wood is he didn't have money or time. Yeah, they had both, huh? Yeah, and, you know, Ed Wood had Tor Johnson and his dentist, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, <laughs> this movie has some of the most acclaimed actors of that age. Yeah. Back in Ethiopia, Lamont asked a local man if anyone around might remember Marin or Kokomo. The man translating for Lamont questions the abbot of the church who remembers Marin as a very holy man and remembers him tending to a sick boy, an event connected to a devil wind that resulted in the death of somebody who fell into a crevice and whose body was never found. So apparently they never checked the crevice. Yep. They're like, oh, he fell. He fell, That's yeah. It. Moving on. It's like, uh, to, to use the Batman Forever reference again, when, when he gets the note and Gordon's like, yep, suicide. <laughs> Lamont starts descending into the crevice, claiming that he's seen where the body fell. The Ethiopians, not unreasonably thinking he's crazy, f- follow him. Meanwhile, by the way, Reagan's taking part in a tap dance show. No, you did this whole tap dancing sequence? Uh-huh. This is one of the bits that Berman didn't direct. Because Berman was off sick for a month. Do you know this? No, I haven't. I did not read this, no. Okay, so you know the uh, the African sets on the sound stage? Uh-huh. They had to obviously bring in sand for that. So they brought in sand from the desert, but with the sand, they brought in a dangerous fungal 
infection. Oh my god. Now, I've forgotten the scientific term for it, but it's sometimes called San Juan Valley Fever. Oh. And it's really bad. And Berman got this, uh, and was got and couldn't work, and was getting strange rashes, and went to the doctors, and the doctors said, yeah, this is syphilis. But but that was a misdiagnosis. It was just this other terrible thing that was called mm-hmm. syphilis. So he was off for a month, but they continued shooting. Who directed these Roscoe scenes, then? Pallen- Roscoe Pallenberg, okay. whom was a sort of young writer and aspiring director whom Berman was collaborating with, okay. who had done the uncredited rewrites on the script with Berman. And he's in the credits as, like, a creative consultant or something weird. Um, he directed these bits. Okay. So I know the tap dancing scene is one of the bits he, he directed. directed. And... Uh, and Linda Blair has talked about this a lot. She talked about the bits where, well, you know, Berman wasn't there for a couple of weeks. So, yeah, this stuff's awful, but we, uh, oh, Lord, you know, Berman didn't actually shoot it. I'm not sure it would be better, yeah. but I like the idea that the universe is trying to stop him. <laughs> Lamont finds the skull of the man, and when asked how he knew the location of the body, he reveals that he spoke to Pazuzu while hypnotized. So the habit looks disgusted, and he leaves, and Lamont follows despite his interpreter's protests. Eventually, they start throwing yeah. rocks at Lamont, who's quite frankly pushing his luck at this point. Well, they're throwing polystyrene rocks at him. <laughs> yeah. So it's not as bad, or, you know. Um, you know the way Lamont doesn't seem to know stuff? And it's like, you know, say, if, hypothetically, you're visiting a, a remote community of very religious people, and they ask you how you need something? Don't tell them it's because you're speaking to the demon. (laughs) So this is when we get this weird psychic connection where every time Lamont's hit by these rocks, somehow Reagan's feeling it. Yeah, now they're linked where it's like, (sighs) your pain is my pain. So does this mean like when, like if he is on during his travels, if he has a a bad dinner and shits his brains out, does she experience the same thing? I mean, I think it's temp. I think it's, well, it's an E.T. and Elliot kind of thing, right? More like itchy and scratchy. (laughs) Yeah. No, uh, just... uh. Tuscan sedates Reagan, which she objects to, saying Tuscan is trying to kill my soul. Lamont, seemingly not much much worse for the wear, is trying to track down the city where Kokomo lives. And then we get the arrival of Deliverance's own Ned Beatty. Second time we're reviewing him this year, Matt. Yeah, I have expected him to go, Otis, were you followed? (laughs) (laughs) Can we talk about his character in the end? Yes, please do. Because when Lamont asks him what he's called, he says, they call me Ecumenical Edwards. And no, they don't. <laughs> no one's ever going to give you a nickname that's got a big word in it that a lot of people don't know the meaning of. It's not how nicknames work. I just, my head canon theory is that, you know, Ned Beatty's character, he's like the Schofield kid in Unforgiven. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> giving himself this nickname and he hopes people will start using it, you oh, know, on account of how ecumenical he is. Uh, <laughs> that's great. It's, it's just such terrible writing. I, I just, I'm losing the uh, will to live at this point. Boy, I don't know if Beatty owed him a huge favor for deliverance, but what the hell is he doing here? Now this movie turns into National Lampoon's Vacation for two scenes. Where, like, it's like Cousin Eddie shows up. Mm-hmm. Ned Beatty's wife at the time is like Tuscan's assistant. Really? Oh, that's his wife? Yeah. Yes. Good um, for him. Yeah. <laughs> Edwards and Lamont are now flying to the city, and they pass a couple of crop dusters spraying for locusts. So this is the route of the plague, right? These locusts. And they're thinking they're going to stop him with DDT. Yeah. Yeah, because the last thing this movie needed was Jake the Snake. <laughs> Lamont replies that he's flown this route before on the wings of a demon. 
Edwards laughs at this because the yeah, whole audience like, is laughing at this point. That's like the scene in Predator where he's like, I ain't got time to bleed. And the guy's like, oh, like, it's yeah. just, that's so dumb. I can't even respond in an appropriate mm-hmm. way. Lamont is now wandering around the city trying to find Kokomo without much success. He sees the house which Kokomo emerged from in his vision, but a policeman has never heard of him. Later, Lamont is wandering around the city, bugging random passerbys, asking if they're Kokomo. <laughs> he encounters a crowd and asks for him, and they seemingly understand him. They take him to a house, and out comes a female prostitute, very bare-breasted. But Lamont does not succumb to this temptation. He scampers off as the crowd chuckles at him. Now it's daybreak. Lamont yeah. is still wandering the streets. He begs God for help, saying he hasn't even called on Pazuzu for him, and can't God cut him some slack? Reagan starts talking to Lamont telepathically. We know this because a light shining on her face, telling him to call me by my dream name. Lamont doesn't need much urging and calls upon Pazuzu to help him find Kokomo. Reagan and Lamont both start saying Kokomo over and over. <laughs> they say it so much that at this point I'm very annoyed. <laughs> yeah, I keep expecting Brian Wilson to just pop out yeah. any, any second. <laughs> well, I mean, but he wouldn't because Kokomo was sucky late stage Beach Boys, so it's, it's all Mike Love. <laughs> and n- Brian Wilson would never have allowed a song as terrible as Kokomo to happen. <laughs> Lamont goes into the house, walking down a strange pathway with Kokomo in a very, very weird-looking locust outfit. Kokomo tells Lamont that Reagan is still in danger, as Pazuzu has brushed you with his wings. Lamont protests otherwise, and Kokomo tells him he must prove it by crossing over a pit that stands between them, a dark pond full of spikes. And to demonstrate that they're real, I'm going to shoot a tomato out of my mouth. Like, was- <laughs> Yeah, what was that? Oh, what is, yes. <laughs> why, 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 why does the red thing come from his mouth? What does it mean? What's happening? Yeah, I don't know if that's a tomato, an egg. What the hell is that? Yeah, like, th- this is where the movie just says, Fuck Yeah, it. yeah. Like, we're, we're just going full, like, abstract dream logic These with these sequences. Especially with how it cuts. God, this movie's stupid. Lamont's stepping in the pit, and unsurprisingly, he's just puncturing his feet to hell. He falls, he's screaming, and then we find out it was all a vision. Lamont is lying on the floor in a building somewhere, and Kokomo's standing over him, dressed in a lab coat. And boy, he looks very normal. I had never seen James Earl Jones this young, and man, he was a good-looking dude. Um, You know, have you seen Dr. Strangelove? <sighs> years and years ago. I don't even remember it, but yeah, I have seen it. Because he's one of the B fifty two flight crew in Is that. He? Yeah, and he looks he looks positively boyish, you know, in that. It's weird seeing him look. Like yeah, that. he helps Lamont to his feet, and when Lamont moans that he failed, Kokomo suggests that it was the heat. Lamont asks if he knew Marin and if he was ever possessed by Pazuzu. Kokomo's laughing. He says, "That's what my mother used to tell me." I have all this stuff written down, boys, because these lines you just cannot make up. They were delivered by professional actors. These lines. And there's going to be people listening the, to this who have not seen the movie and say, I don't believe you. Exactly. Which is why we're telling people, you have to watch this yeah. movie. Yeah. So Kokomo's leading Lamont into his laboratory where he studies locusts. He tells Lamont how they brush their wings together during the rainy season, agitating them and turning them into a destructive force with a hive mind. As this is being said, we're getting lots of close-ups of locusts looking very locusty. Yeah. Um, here's the thing. All those shots of locusts are expensive. Uh, they had to hire Oxford Scientific Films mm. to get all of that photography of, you know, locusts. Uh, it's weird. There's kind of two ways you can go when you're putting, you know, bugs in your movie, yes. You can 
use them intelligently. Like, have you seen the film Theaters 4? No. Yeah, with the ants? Yeah, it's the, it's the only film the famous uh, title Soul designer Soul Bass ever directed. And it's this very cerebral, very 70s science fiction film about ants. Uh, and, not uh, giant ants. Oh, it's regular nice. size. Hawthorne. And, yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a weird movie. Yeah, it's weird and, and fascinating and kind of great. And then the other approach is, you know, um, the last section of um, George Romero's Creep Show, where it's like, look, cockroaches, aren't you grossed out? And, you know, it's the two ways you can use insects in this kind of film, I think. Either as objects of fascination, because we don't really know how they think, or, ooh, gross. And this kind of does neither. This yeah. kind of has, look, locust, and I don't know what I'm meant to think. Lamont asks if there is any hope for them once they've been brushed by the wings, and Kokomo shows him a specially bred locust who can resist the brushing. We call her the good locust. <laughs> Kokomo tells, then tells Lamont that the good locust children will be a calming force for future generations of locusts. Meanwhile, we're cutting to Reagan. She's getting out of bed, and she's sneaking out of the clinic with a really large bag. Okay, is this a psych ward? I, is this just a doctor's office? I don't know if this is Tuscan's office. I don't know where we are at this point. Because she's like, Reagan, you can't leave. And she's like, oh, it's okay. Yeah. 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 <laughs> like, I don't understand mm. anything. It just... Uh, <laughs> mm. Yeah. This one has broken me <laughs> fundamentally. Mick, you and I, sir... We have reviewed a lot of bad movies. We went through that whole last leg of the George A. Romero dead films. And this is what's breaking you. Yeah, yeah. This film, um, you know when the credits on the film roll? Mm -hmm. I thought it should have one of those numbers you can call, you know? If you have been harmed by John Borman, you may be titled the financial <laughs> compensation. Yes, yes. It's, it's one of those... Uh, uh, <laughs> what even is narrative? Why is cinema? You know. Sharon gets a call from the clinic about Reagan, and when she hears the doorbell, she assumes it's Reagan that's come home. She opens the door, and it's actually Lamont. He's in a black jacket, and he has what looks like an African shirt underneath. Yeah, it's it's symbolic. Yeah, I mean, come on. You know, because he's, he's taken this knowledge with him back from Africa. That's why he's not wearing the dog color anymore. That's why he's got his, you know, his Kwanzaa shirt underneath. Yeah. Uh, Sharon isn't happy. She's saying that it's all your fault that Reagan is very sick. You stirred it all up. And Lamont says that he and only he can help her. But Sharon goes, we don't want to hear anything about demons or God or anything. My God, is Kitty Wound bad in this movie? She's really, really bad. Um, yeah, I think the problem here is that um, John Berman's not interested in directing her. But John Berman's very, very interested in making sure that we can see her nipples. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's like, a, is there a reason why she's wearing something so diaphanous? This is not the same girl who saw Help Me being written on this girl's stomach. Like, it just... No, ugh, no. It irks me. So we're at the Natural History Museum, and Reagan and Lamont, they meet up again. He tells her that they'll have to fight the evil within her together. And we also find out that she stole the synchronizer. <laughs> Reagan and Lamont, they go to some motel together and set up the synchronizer. Okay, this whole bit oh, here. Oh, so, so cringy. Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, well, it's, you know, here's the thing. We have an older European man, mm. and we have this underage American girl, and all I can think of is the novel Lolita. Yeah, this... I mean, I'm just, I'm just like, just, it's either the... There's a creepiness to how this film has been framing and shooting Linda Blair, 
But you know, all of these scenes where Burton and Blair are together, you know, like this, I am, I, I am thinking, did Humbert Humbert become a scriptwriter? Oh, you know, I'm, I'm, re- I'm really weirded out by how skeevy this whole thing is. It's creepy, but not creepy in the way they were hoping it would be. Yeah, it's just unnerving because of the implications behind it. Well, do you know what Berman said? Do I want to Yeah, I was going to say, do I want to Oh, okay, I'm going to, yeah, okay. So he had said, uh, you know, he was interested in the uh, the poignancy of the sexual tension between them. Oh, my God. Because, of course, it could never be because he's a priest. And I'm like, dude, she's a child. Yeah. It's not the vow of celibacy on the, uh, you know, Lamont's part that should be the thing that makes this unthinkable. So, you know, an issue to be sure, but it, it's the fact that is a child. Uh, I, really, I am. Um, can we arrest the entire next seven <laughs> years of a decade? Can we do that? Yeah, and... Can we send Tankoffs back after the 1970s? Just arrest everyone. And according to Linda Blair, I mean, she has been on record and said that both her and Burton were very, very uncomfortable filming these scenes, with good reason. These are scenes that would make me... If I were Linda Blair or her parents, I'd say rewrite these scenes because this is disgusting. So they sync up and things get a bit trippy. We're back in Reagan's room in Georgetown and the possessed Reagan is taunting the dying Marin. Again, this is not Linda Blair, so it comes off as very silly. Marin starts monologuing about goodness and Pazuzu trying to destroy it. And he then entrusts Lamont with the mission to protect Reagan. And then the synchronizer goes off and Lamont leaves the room and he's acting possessed. Yeah. I don't think he's acting at all. (laughs) (laughs) Reagan tries to talk to him, but he's not answering. He's just walking with a blank look. She follows him to Penn Station and goes to pay phones to call Tuscan to apologize for stealing the synchronizer. Yeah, because this is also one of the problems with really futuristic technology contradicted by the fact that they're using fucking pay phones. Yeah, exactly. Tuscan tells Reagan not to go with Lamont, but Reagan says that she has to and she hangs up. She runs after him, who's managed to board the train and find a seat in what seems like just a few seconds, and she barely makes it on board. Sharon mutters, stupid bitch to herself, because this is Katie Wynn acting, boys. On the train, Reagan finds Lamont and asks if he has any money for tickets. He doesn't so much as blink. He reaches into his coat for his wallet when the conductor, naturally suspicious, stops her. She tries to explain when Lamont turns to the conductor and says, leave her alone, she belongs to me. Yeah. Naturally, the conductor accepts this explanation without question. Tuscan, we're almost there, boys. Tuscan and Sharon, they drive to the airport, and there's a weird bit where they come upon an accident, and a bloodied man comes right up to their car and begs for a doctor. Sharon brushes him off, but Tuscan insists on helping, to which Sharon says, well, Reagan can wait, I guess. (laughs) This is real. This happened in this movie. I also love when the car spins out of control. Oh, yeah. They put the camera inside. Uh It's it's just then gripping the door. (laughs) (laughs) Back on the train, Lamont is still staring out the window. And I guess this is kind of a cool shot. We have reflecting lights of passing cities framing his face. I think this is cool. But I don't like the monologue that he's doing here. He realizes that Reagan told Tuscan what was going on. And he glances up at the sky. And then we see a jet flying overhead with Tuscan and Sharon on board. The music cues us, telling us that something creepy is about to happen. And then we get the turbulence. (laughs) Yeah. Reagan says to Lamont, Father, please don't be lost to me. And the music gets real stingy and emotional. And she's still using the same tone as if she's saying, please don't be mad when I get home a few hours late. But Lamont calms down and everything on the plane goes back to normal. Boy, that was quick. 
Lamont tells Reagan, yeah. I must, the power, I must take you there. And Reagan asks if Kokomo told him that. Lamont responds, he said, the good locust, and then this trails off. He must have been drunk that day. Tuscan and Sharon land in D.C., and then they rush to get a cab. While Lamont and Reagan, they arrive and board a bus for Georgetown. And then we get Lamont yelling at a bus driver, <laughs> saying, get going, this girl has to get home. Nothing to say about that, huh, guys? <laughs> We're stunned at this. No, no, no. This I, is... I, this is the point in the movie where I had the HUD uh-huh. underneath my movie because I wanted to see how much was left. You had that up, huh? And I counted down the seconds until this movie was over. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I got this question. It's, why don't they call somebody? Why doesn't Tuscan call somebody in D.C. before leaving? I don't understand why this is a problem that they have to go and deal with themselves personally. You know, uh... The taxi is then held up by a cop on account of a motorcade, and Tuscan says, I'm going to see about this, like she's going to ask to speak to the cop's manager. (laughs) (laughs) The bus pulls up to the steps, and then Lamont runs to them, with Reagan following him, whining, Father, no! Indeed, Lamont gets inside, and Reagan follows, although she somehow manages to get caught on some barbed wire. (laughs) Meanwhile, Tuscan and Sharon then make their way towards the house, courtesy of some really bad rear projection, and... I believe, Mick, you're the one who mentioned this rear projection earlier, right? Yeah, yeah, there's a, um, it, it's weird. Berman, having really used actual locations so well on previous movies, just clearly got really comfortable with doing as much stuff in, in studio spaces as possible on this one. Mm-hmm. It's bizarre, but again, they, they couldn't shoot in Washington, D.C., they didn't get permits, so it's all backlog, you know, oh, and... Yeah. Lamont opens the door to Reagan's old bedroom, or what we're being told is representing Reagan's old bedroom, and then we see a ton of locusts swarm out. And then it appears that another car passing the taxi causes the taxi's windshield to crack in such a way that the driver can't see the road at all, and he starts spinning out, and Matt, you mentioned this scene earlier. And then a hole appears in the windshield, and we see the house dead ahead after which the taxi crashes through the fence. This is pretty amazing, i got to say, and how ridiculous it is. Uh, we've also got the bit earlier when they say they want to go to Prospect Street and the taxi driver responds with fear. And I, I want to know this, so <laughs> I just want to pick this a second. Isn't Prospect Street like a nice part of town? Isn't isn't that the thing from the first film? It's, you know, That's it's, what they say, yeah. So is he scared because he knows about the thing that happened there four years ago? And if it's common knowledge, why do they need an investigation? This movie has stopped making sense a long time ago. And at this yeah, point, yeah. Matt is exactly yeah. right. It is a countdown to the end here. And the movie stopped making sense as soon as the title yeah. started showing <laughs> opening 30 seconds. Inside the house, Reagan ascends the stairs, finding Lamont sitting on the floor near the door to the bedroom. She kneels next to him and says, Father, let me reach you. Lamont points at the bedroom door and Reagan turns and begins to slowly make her way towards the door. Meanwhile, Sharon's crawling out of the taxi. We see that the cabbie is clearly dead, but she doesn't even notice this. Neither does Tuscan. Yeah, don't pay any attention to it. Yeah, Tuscan's begging Sharon to help her out of the car so they can help Reagan. Sharon starts to get this weird look on her face, and Tuscan tells Sharon to help Reagan fight this thing. Sharon demands that Tuscan name it, and she does, and then Sharon just smirks. Reagan finally opens the door to the bedroom, and we can see the possessed Reagan sitting on the bed. Regular Reagan, she screams. We then see Tuscan. She gets out of the cab on her own and tells Sharon that she's got to get inside. Sharon isn't really blocking the way, though. Like, Tuscan's acting like she's blocking it the way, but Sharon's just standing there. All right, so, well, the dumbest thing about this climax, and holy shit, I could write a book about how bad this is, is that the movie is attempting to do a whole thing about 
how much of this is in people's mental headspace versus seeing is believing. But everything in the climax is literalized, which makes everything else so dumb when they're trying to explain the theme. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. All the wrong choices have been made across the board, just in every aspect of this film. And the finale is kind of where they all come together in this glorious crescendo of back. In the house, Lamont is grabbing Reagan and just shaking her for a bit. Reagan then says Marin's name, and the possessed Reagan scoffs, mutating into some present-day Reagan, claiming Pazuzu's Reagan is the only Reagan. Oh, boy. There is no Reagan. Only <laughs> she then reclines on the bed and says, Be joined with us, Father. Yeah, at this point in the film, I'm, I'm, I'm worried that having rented it, I'm now on some kind of watch list. <laughs> Yeah, I'm worried watching this movie that Chris Hansen's going to show up on my doorstep in a second. Reagan throws himself, Lamont throws himself into Reagan's arms, and she tells him to kill the actual Reagan. Okay, here's just a thing here, right? Mm -hmm. Because Linda Blair was not yet 18 when they shot this stuff. So, legally, they weren't allowed to have her on set for the same amount of time as an adult. Yeah, child labor laws apply here. And you got to think about, you know, so... They know she's a minor, right? It's an aspect of the production they can't ignore because she can only be on set for eight hours a day, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, apparently it was an issue with production with them getting enough footage or getting her to set on time and all of this. So it's, it's like, well, why are you filming her this way? Why, why are you being creepy and sexual? Just please stop. You know, it's, it's like they can't have been unaware, right? Mm-hmm. Sharon stomps on the headlamp and goes up in flames. <laughs> Why is she lighting herself on fire? Why is she killing herself? I, I... Yeah, how is it that Pazuzu can possess multiple people at the same time? Because, yeah. you know, the way to explain it is if you, if you use that EKG machine, but she never does. Exactly. Meanwhile, Lamont is trying to kill Reagan, and she starts speaking in Kokomo's voice, going on about the good locusts and the brushing of the wings. While the fake Reagan is gloating and talking shit and being hilariously over the top about it. I mean, come on, Matt, we mentioned it last week. This is repossessed, right? <laughs> oh, this, this totally yeah. is. Finally, Reagan's asking, why me? And then that seems to do the trick, and Lamont returns to himself. Reagan slash Kokomo, they repeat a line from earlier, you must tear out her evil heart, and Lamont immediately starts trying to strangle the fake Reagan, who amazingly doesn't mutate into a more imposing form. A swarm of locusts is seen over the Capitol building, and then Sharon's burning up and continuing to underreact. I'm speechless at this point. Like, I'm sitting, I, I'm going to put you in my, my shoes when I was watching this movie. I'm, I'm watching this climax, and when the house starts coming apart, and he rips out her heart like it's fucking Mortal Kombat, I'm sitting there going, they have thrown up their hands and say, we don't know how to end this movie. And quite frankly, I don't think they care. This is a disastrous climax for a movie that's already insufferable. And this is the the creme de la creme of closing out a terrible movie. Tuscan runs into the street crying for help, and she looks around and then just wanders back to the house. The directing and editing is just, again, abysmal. I've run out of words at this point. The locusts descend upon the house and pour into the bedroom, smashing the windows as they go. Lamont and fake Reagan, they continue to grapple with each other. And then the actual Reagan's not really, she's trying just not to get hurt. For some reason, the house starts to crack open all over and light starts to pour out of it. I gotta say, it does look impressive. This is a pretty good effect. 
We have Burton acting with a lot of grimacing, and then Blair's doing a lot of screaming, and then Lamont manages to tear out evil Reagan's heart, as Matt mentioned. And God, this looks bad. It just looks bad. The house continues to disintegrate. Again, like, all of this would be really cool if it actually mattered, but it doesn't. Tuscan watches in horror while she clutches Sharon, who's finally gone out. Reagan stops screaming and starts making circles in the air with her hand. And this needs to be seen to believe, folks. She is raising her arm up and she, with her left hand, is making circles. And this somehow makes these locusts go away. I cannot believe Borman thought to include this shot. She's a locust whisperer. <laughs> All of this is juxtaposed with young Kokomo doing the same thing with the same result. And this is causing the locusts to calm down. And then we have the music and lighting. It starts getting a tutorial. So we know at this point that the evil is being thrown out and something good is finally happening. And then the locusts just go away. They vanish. And Lamont just strolls out of the rubble while Reagan looks like she doesn't know how she managed to do that. <laughs> and by the way, Matt, as if this wasn't too much in your face, the sun's coming up. Uh, oh, yeah. They, they leave no room for metaphor. No. Subtlety. No. Lamont goes over to Tuscan and Sharon. Sharon's dying, but this looks like this actress is just smeared with barbecue sauce, so, like... Oh, God, yeah, doesn't yeah. it? It just doesn't look like blood. It looks like, you yeah. know... Oh. Lamont consoles her and gives her the last rites. She and Reagan share a glance before Sharon dies. Lamont then says that the time has come. Now we are saved and made strong. The enemy of the human race is subdued. What exactly has come? Like, what exactly is he referring to? Well, we're not all going to be a hive mind. <laughs> Because Reagan is this new special kind of person who's a healer. The muddled sort of a new age theology of the film, it's that, it's supposed to be that, well, now that Reagan has been saved, unlike either the uh, poor girl at the start who was set on fire, um, <laughs> now that we have saved one of these healers, we can begin this process of all evolving forward, becoming mm. people hive mind that's closer to God. Mm. That's the ending. And it, it's gibberish. Yes. Tuscan tearfully tells Reagan, I understand now the world, though not yet, and tells Lamont to take care of Reagan because that'd be, that'd be a good match. Yeah, because that's the person. Yeah. After everything I've seen, yeah. I'm going to leave her with. And this movie's attempt at bringing things full circle with two people being lit on fire fails spectacularly because they both die. So this movie is failing at, at its pitiful attempts mm. at retribution and redemption. Reagan doesn't have another mother out there who's going to wonder where her daughter is. So this, again, just negates everything. Lamont and Reagan, they just kind of walk out, walk out into the sunrise. And the camera pans back to Tuscan, then slowly revolves around her as the authorities and the neighbors finally arrive. Everyone's asking what happened. And then we get a close-up of Tuscan's face as the synchronizer glow starts shining in it. And we fade to credits, boys. That is perhaps the most intricate, ridiculous plot I have ever read on this show. Anything yeah. about the climax, boys? Well, you know that uh, famously when this film was in release, Borman actually re-edited it? Yeah, apparently after the premiere, he did a lot of touch-ups on this. Yeah, so um, some theaters were sent new last reels, mm -hmm. and in, in that other ending, it, it appears that Lamont dies, which would make it a little closer to the ending of the original film, and would actually make it three priests that Reagan's gotten killed. I think this movie also killed three podcasts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just... <laughs> All right, scale of one to ten. What do we give The Exorcist to The Heretic? Mick, you go ahead and go, sir. 
Okay, I'm going to reward the uh, the films one redeeming feature, which is the Warner Brothers logo at the start. Because <laughs> it's, it's hear me out. It's it's the early '70s Warner Brothers logo. That is pretty cool. And that's yeah. and that's normally red on white, but for this, they sort of flip the colors around. So it's kind of it's it's black now. Yes, it's red against black. It's like an inversion of the normal logo at the time. So it's a it's a very early example of that thing. You know, they do that now all of the time. You know, you'll see the studio logo, and it's glitching. So you know this movie means business, yeah. Um, <laughs> this isn't your dad's horror movie or espionage thriller. Look, look, you know. Um, so it's an early example of that, and I quite like how that looks. Um, so for that, this is getting one. Your one compliment for this movie is the logo at the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's creative tampering with the corporate logo at the start. I'm just being super generous. I don't think I can go lower than one, but that's it. It's one out of ten. <laughs> one out of ten for the opening logo. Mick, you never cease to amaze me, sir. Matt, you have been about as angry as I've heard you since we reviewed The Lady in the Water. What do you have to say about The Exorcist 2? It, it's not the fact that I'm angry. It's more the fact that I, I feel like... I wasted my time. And quite frankly, I don't have anything to add on the part of insightfulness to conclude my thoughts on this movie because people like Mark Kermode have said everything I feel about this movie, having watched it for the first time. It is undoubtedly one of the worst sequels ever made. And I ask myself, is this one of the worst movies ever viewed on this show? Yes, but I don't know to what degree I would rank this on the totem pole of garbage. So. Is there anything good I can say about this movie? No. I, I don't I genuinely don't have much to, to say. I'd be fishing for compliments. Like I, I want to give this movie its last rights and never think about it again. You know, I kinda wanna lock it away like the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark, where they just put it away and you you never see it again. Watch this movie once just to comp- attempt to comprehend the hootspah that went into into this. But don't go in expecting a good movie. And I also don't think this is one of those so bad it's good movies that comes around to being enjoyable. Because as I said at the start, it's both audacious in what it does, but at the same time, it's predominantly boring and a slog to get through. So because of that, I think I'm going to go with Mick. I'm going to give this a one. This movie's fucking bad. Like, there's no other way to say it. All right. So we have two ones at one out of tens. From my two colleagues here. All right, so what do I have to say about this film that hasn't already been said on this podcast? I got to look at it from what do I feel about the returning characters? Returning characters are not even recognizable in this movie. Father Marin is just kind of wandering around. Max Van Cito must have gotten a hefty paycheck to kind of do what he does in this movie. What the hell Kitty Wynn is doing here that she didn't do last film? Well, I mentioned that earlier, and here she comes off as a neurotic pain in the ass. Just, again, not recognizable. And speaking of unrecognizable, that would lead me to Linda Blair, who in the previous film got nominated for an Oscar in this film, is coming off as just an amateurish performance. There's no other way to put it. Matt, you and I reviewed with Mike. We reviewed the Silence of the Lambs, the um, Hannibal series, and we mentioned that 
Anthony Hopkins was nominated for an Oscar for Silence of the Lambs, and he came back in Hannibal and was just not the same character. It is definitely more extreme here because this is a character who, in Reagan, who I do not see any of the heft that we saw previously, what this girl went through. They used the plot device of, well, her memory was wiped. What is she, C-3PO? She, everything's just taken out of her mind? We've mentioned in the past that you know, we hate angsty characters where all we are is we're sulking. Hell, we said that about Clark Kent in our previous retrospective. I would like to have seen a little more of what that event in that first film did to this character. But the problem is the director doesn't want to see that. The director was out in the press saying, he hated that previous film. He hated that previous script. He hated that book. So he's here to do this with this character, take her on this journey that is just not fun in any way. These returning characters are bad. These new characters are thin as ice. It is terrible to see Richard Burton and Louise Fletcher, two very well-respected actors, literally sleepwalk through a film that was four years in the making after the most successful scary horror film of all time. And last week, I went with The Extreme and gave a 10 out of 10 to The Exorcist. It was um, I was the only one who gave it a 10 out of 10. And with this one, I'm going to go to the other extreme and go right with my two colleagues and give this one a 1. There are no redeeming qualities about this film. And Matt, you're absolutely right. You and I have reviewed a ton of films that are so bad they're good. And both of us have given ironic scores to those in the past. I can't give an ironic score to this because I can't see anybody sitting through 118 minutes of what John Borman decided to put on screen and call a sequel to The Exorcist. It's a painful watch. It's a slog. Hell, put on Repossess instead of this fucking movie. It's just a fucking turkey, and there's a reason why it's one of the worst films of all time. All right, so that does it for The Exorcist 2. Next week, we have, well... A movie that is called The Exorcist 3 was not originally intended to be The Exorcist 3. And it's a movie that I have seen maybe twice in my life. And honestly, I have no idea what to expect next week because I hardly remember it. I think the last time I watched this movie was probably about 20 years ago. Nick, what are you expecting next week when we review The Exorcist 3? I'm expecting to have a better time. <laughs> well, that goes without saying, sir. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's... Uh, I, I, I've seen it fairly recently i think i saw it about three or four years ago so uh yeah i'm i'm looking forward to seeing it again uh i i think it's probably a very underrated film i'm gonna reserve my full judgment till i see it again but um it's definitely a horror movie it's definitely more interested in in scaring us this one wasn't <laughs> so in your professional opinion you're expecting a better film all right well thanks for joining us Mick. yeah matt <laughs> sir what are you expecting <laughs> next week when we review the exorcist 3 uh, I'm expecting to have a, a considerably higher quality than the movie that I slogged through for this recording, which was longer than the actual movie, by the way. It's a movie I've championed for a long time. It's one of my favorite horror movies, period, not just in this franchise. And I, I think it's a movie that is, I'm not going to call it underrated anymore because it's gotten a, a larger following, but I definitely think it's also, it's it's one of those things to where... It's only overlooked in the sense that 90s horror does not have the best reputation, and everyone only goes to, like, Scream and Silence of the Lambs, where I think this is this has an important role as well and is a movie that has influenced a lot of people. If you don't believe me, take a look at David Fincher 7 when you get a chance, and then watch The Exorcist 3 and tell me that he wasn't at least inspired 
by this movie to some degree. All right. That's a hell of a tease for next week. And I, I honestly cannot wait to revisit it. I remember certain things about that movie, even as a teenager when I rented it, scared the fuck out of me. And I have a story behind The Exorcist 3, and I can't wait to get to it. But boys, until next week when we review, as Mick calls it, a better movie, I implore to all our listeners, don't hide behind podcasts. You're better than that. Thank you, gentlemen. What harm could there be in his being baptized? A great deal. Those people hate and fear Chechia. Do you want to expose him to further danger by having him join a religion they equate with evil? Say it. Say it, Mariner, can't you? The work of Satan. It's the work of man! Why can't you accept that? Because my only concern is the eternal soul of that young man. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Three Men in a Retrospective Podcast. You really don't want me to play, huh? No, I do. Captain Howdy said no. Join us next week for an entirely new review. And if you would be so kind... Please take a moment and give us a positive review and rating on your podcast platform of choice. The soul is mine! It truly helps others find and discover our podcasts. I like plays. The good ones. Shakespeare. I like Titus Andronicus the best. It's sweet. And if you like this review please head over to percolatedmedia.net or search your podcast streamer of choice. For we have individual reviews such as Knock at the Cabin, The Black Phone, Megan, as well as additional blockbuster franchises like Avatar, Pirates of the Caribbean series, Stephen King's ongoing collection, and many more. He has work to do much more. The Three Men in a Retrospective podcast is produced by Garrett, Matt, Adam, and Nathan. Did you know that you are talking to an artist? Edited by Garrett. Once the wings have brushed you, you're mine forever. Voiceovers by Adam. Look, your daughter doesn't say she's a demon. She says she's the devil himself. The Three Men and a Retrospective Podcast is for review and discussion, and all clips, music, and audio cues are used as such.
John Borman was incapable of getting everyone on the same on the same page. Boys, I gotta feed my cats real quick. They're not leaving me alone. Give me about two minutes, okay? I'll be right back. Okay. Good. He's gonna perform his own exorcism on those cats guys, in about guys, thirty seconds. Guys, come here. The power of Christ compels you. You know who must love this movie? Michael Jackson, because he uses that same roar in beat. Does he really? In the music video, yeah. Oh my god. Mick, what do you think about that when when we're seeing this this roaring and sync? It's, uh, uh, it's, yeah, there are no words. Yeah, okay, all right, we'll move on. Sometimes, sometimes human language just fails okay. us, and this is one of them. All right, so we cut back to the power of Christ compels you. And then Sharon's burning up and continuing to underreact. Go ahead. I'm sorry, I stepped on somebody. Go ahead. Sorry, no, just a uh, locust capital building. Um, today's news, you know, satire, uh, I think. Matt, yes. Um, I've been watching. I've, go ahead. So I've been watching CNN earlier, and this is uh, this is the day that they, uh, they were having the vote on McCarthy uh, remaining as speaker. So, you know. The power of Christ compels you. I got to say, it does look impressive. This is a pretty good effect, but I have no yeah, idea why it's happening. I think of Poltergeist. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah. They could have sued Spielberg. Uh, we well, they would have sued. They would have sued Toby Hooper. Well, yeah. <laughs> a discussion to have another day. <laughs> we have Burton acting with a lot of grimacing. 